Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the uscfootball.com podcast family, the Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and, of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. I just need to say at the top of this show, if you were listening to this show, this episode specifically will be a historic episode. It will go down in history as episode 10 of season two, but it will always be known as the tooth episode. Gerard did not want me to mention this, but I, as a scribe to history, need to let you know that Gerard has a tooth issue and he's playing hurt. This is his flu game. This is Dave Aranda playing in the playoffs with a broken leg against modern day. He's gutting out tonight's episode. And I just need everyone to know that the legend of Hurricane Garage Martinez grows a little bit more tonight with this episode. And if he sucks, then we can just blame it on the tooth, right? <laughs> so yeah, that that's what I'm that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm starting with, Gerard. We don't want excuses. We don't need. We're sympathy. not asking for them. We're not asking for when them. When you put it out there like know. that, everybody's like, "Oh, what's going on? What happened, man? I just I had a crown break, and uh, yeah, I got to get it fixed, and it's it's hurting. <laughs> it's definitely painful. Uh, but I was able to get in uh today. Actually, you know, it happened last night. Happened kind of yesterday afternoon, but. Last night was like, oh, my gosh, this is really excruciating pain. So I actually was able to get in and, uh, you know, thank God they uh, they gave me some Tylenol 3 and some ibuprofen. And, um, you know, we're, we're good to go. I'm, I've got a uh, appointment for Friday and then a follow up. And you know what? I'm already on track for, for getting better, baby. We're already on the rehab track. You don't have a broken crown. The broken crown has a hurricane. That's how I like to look at it. And I find this kind of funny because you had to go to the dentist today. I actually have my dentist appointment tomorrow. So I don't know what's going on with the cilantro boys and their teeth. Hopefully I have better news than you, but I appreciate you, Gerard, gutting it out for this performance. And this is actually, if you listen to our emergency podcast earlier this week, this is the second podcast we're doing for this week, this very busy game week. You had new athletic director. You had Julia Lewis, the number one prospect in 2026, committing to USC. That was what our emergency podcast was about. You have Reggie Bush filing a lawsuit against the NCAA, and we haven't even gotten to the actual game against San Jose State. So 
Lots of things are happening. We actually don't have a super ton of things to talk about on this episode of the podcast. We spent an hour talking about more or less an hour, 47 minutes, which is like two seconds in Cilantro Boy Composite Two Star Recruits time. Uh, Talking about Julian Lewis, that will be the lead once again, but a little shorter recap. We'll get into that. We're going to talk about a big visitor coming to town this week. A little bit of it. We'll get Gerard's thoughts on Jen Cohen as the AD. A couple of new scholarship offers. We actually got to see some real football Friday night lights. Of course, we're going to get Gerard's thoughts on Reggie Bush. We'll talk a little bit about the game this weekend. We have a bunch of listener questions. But before we get into all that, you know I have to shout out the official sponsor the composite two-star recruits, Meredith Schlosser. We're talking about Julian Lewis, number one prospect in the country, committing to USC. You know who else is number one? Yeah, Schlosser. As one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews, she's backed by a full-service team that allows her to service a wide range of clientele for rentals, sales, and purchases. She has extensive experience with first-time home buyers and seller, she was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. I'm not talking SoCal. I'm not talking West Coast. I'm not talking whatever. I'm talking the nation, the whole country. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. See all the listings and things she's has going on seriously i'm a client if you if you're thinking about buying selling renting whatever a house go with meredith and her team they are the best i guarantee it gerard let's get into this something we've already touched on for early in this week as i mentioned our emergency podcast you should go and listen to that as the quickest composite two-star podcast you will ever listen to in your life where we break down everything about julian lewis but we still wanted to touch on it here to start our show because he's the number one prospect in the country. Not the number one quarterback, which he is. The number one prospect in 2026. He is the top. He is technically a four-star quarterback. Just because 24-7 sports does not give out five stars that early, you got to earn them. But I personally will be referring to him as a five-star quarterback. You may hear me do that because he's the number one prospect. It's going to happen. He's going to be a five-star prospect. I'm just saying. I'm just getting a jump start on it. Gerard, we have talked a lot about him earlier this week. I did want to throw out a question because USC, as we know, has a little bit of a recruiting slump, uh, if you will, with a couple of decommitments. You know, they've, they've missed out on some guys. Edric Houston, five-star defensive lineman, chose Ohio State over USC. USC has a hat on the table, but lost out on that one. Does Julian Lewis, I know he's a 2026. He is the number one overall prospect. Do you think that does anything to kind of stop the momentum slide for USC? Does this do anything or is it just kind of its own separate thing? Not for the immediate future. I think that, you know, certainly when we're looking into the 2025 and 2026 class, Julian Lewis is a known name. He's a commodity. He's made friends on the camp circuit. He's made friends in the passing circuit. And so I think with those classes, he could still have a lot of influence. And certainly we've talked a little bit about him reclassifying for 2025. And I think he would still have a lot of influence even on that class. This class, eh, the ship has sailed with some of these guys already. 
Now, I don't think it hurts them. We talked about this earlier in the week a little bit about, you know, Draylon Miller, maybe some of these other wide receivers that USC has looked at and has entertained interest from in the past and whether they might see this as a positive. And I think while it's not necessarily something significant enough to change momentum and it's going to change the class around uh, because he's not even going to be in the 2024 class, I still think it does help overall because it is from the perspective of a wide receiver or offensive skill player, a quarterback that is one of the top players in the nation, I think really regardless of class, I mean, I think he is one of the top players overall. I think when he, if he reclassifies to the 2025 class, he will be a five-star and he will probably be maybe not initially a top 10 player, but I would predict that he would be a top 10 player after it's all said and done. Really depends on when he would reclassify and how much evaluation can go into that with him under the guise that he's actually a 2025 prospect. But in terms of right here, right now, uh, I think USC is going to win and lose battles based on who they have committed and what they've said, the relationships they've built, and certainly the momentum they can get by playing on the field this season. When we talk about the whole reclassification potential, the unsubstantiated rumor of all that, and it, it would have to happen you would think after the season, correct? After his sophomore season during the, it feels like a thing that would happen in the summer that would, that would be announced. Yeah. Summer or possibly spring. Um, I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with your summer school classes. And so mm-hmm. this past summer, I know, you know, he was taking some classes and doing some things. He was working towards that and he's probably taking some additional classes. Now I'm not 100% sure Uh, what AP classes that he's taking. But yeah, it's just the process of kind of getting your credits together and then knowing when you reclassify, you know, leaving early uh, from a school and reclassifying from a school, you know, some schools, high schools, that is, make it a little more difficult than others. You know, some make you go take night school. You know, modern day is not big on guys leaving even early in December. And some of those kids actually have to go to classes outside the school to be able to get those additional classes done. You can't actually do them in modern day. At least that's how it was, you know, about five years ago. So there are certain obstacles and hurdles that have to be met. And I'm sure that he's gone over that with the coaching staff at USC and he's talked to the academic people at USC. Um, So that's, you know, something that I think, you know, with COVID, there's another thing that you throw in there with a lot of these kids because they were held back even a year because of that. Um, they had that sort of year off and, you know, a lot of kids just decided to kind of take a year back just from that. So he has the reps his freshman year that you would normally get at varsity football. So he can, you know, probably get this year under his belt he'd have one more year and that would be enough. You know, I think, you know, missing a year of high school football and development is a big deal for most guys, but not all players. You know, we saw JD booty do it. And he jumped out there a year early uh, from high school. Now, that was at the end of his high school career. And it wasn't something that he reclassified during that period in his high school career. It was sort of just at the end. And it was like, bang, you know, by the way, he's going to be enrolling now in the spring. And so, yeah, that decision probably happens. Yeah, that's back in the day. And, and, And obviously, that was a very interesting situation because his dad was, I believe, the AD at Evangel Christian at that point. 
And so, you know, he was running an Angel Christian and there was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, question marks in terms of accreditation and whether he had the right credits and, and he had the basically check the boxes on electives and things that you needed to be able to transfer into USC or, or enroll in USC from high school. But I think with uh, Julian Lewis, because, you know, A, it's been done uh, several times before by other quarterbacks and B, he's still in high school and he's still early on in his high school career that, you know, he could really kind of look ahead and line things up properly and make sure that, you know, all of uh, his I's are dotted and his T's are crossed. And I don't think this is a situation where he's some sort of like double holdback. I think he's like on age for his class. I think he's like, I think he, I'm pretty sure he's 15, maybe going on 60, maybe just turned 16. So I don't think it's like a, a JT Daniels sort of scenario who was, oh God, I don't know how many times he was held back or a holdback. So it wasn't JT the one who kind of opened the door at modern day when they finally started letting kids go early. If I recall, obviously they were, they were infamously, did not work with kids and getting them to go early. But I think then JT was big enough where he was able to force the hand a little bit and he opened that door. And then now it's kind of the norm with a lot of those schools like Bosco and, and modern day, those, those uh, private schools. Yeah, there were a couple of players before him. And I remember talking to parents just about the process of, of having to kind of go outside of modern day and get those classes in night school um, JT was like the biggest name. And then obviously, you know, uh, Horace McCoy, Brew McCoy was another. And I think even during Brew's recruitment, there was like some classes that he had to take off campus and do some things um, because, you know, modern day wasn't really uh, pushing for those guys to leave early. But that was a very different time. You know, now it's it's very customary for these kids to uh, leave um during the middle of their senior years, basically the, you know, the, before their spring semester. So yeah, you kind of have to roll with the times a little bit and adhere, and, and I'm sure it's, it's easier to do now. There's a path to do it now. And, um, you know, most high schools would probably be okay with it. Um, I just don't know necessarily in Julian's case at Carrollton. And, and like I said earlier in the week, there are some connections out here in modern day. We're kind of talking about modern day, but unsubstantiated rumor being that, you know, he could actually transfer out and leave Georgia and come out here for his junior, which would end up being his senior year if he reclassified for 2025, which would make a little bit of sense in and of itself too. So I will see how it all shakes out. Obviously for USC, um, you could argue one hand, that'd be great. You'd have him closer. It'd be better to get him out of the Southeast. It'd be able to, to hold on to that commitment maybe better but then at the same time he hasn't necessarily had a ton of success here lately with modern day recruits so i mean i guess you could argue that both ways we teased on the emergency podcast that we were going to take a little bit more and look at more specifics of the julian lewis commitment impact and that 2026 class with some targets and names, even some in the 2025 class. And I did want to point out because I forgot to point this out on, I think you maybe touched on it, Gerard. I forgot to point this out in the emergency podcast, but when obviously USC offered Julian Lewis and it definitely seemed like they were offering a lot of kids in that cycle out of Georgia. They, we have here on the sheet, they have offered five kids in Georgia for that class, which is the most, besides the state of California where they've offered 18 kids, but there's a good number of Georgia kids they've re- recruited and they, they brought in uh, Bryson Allen uh, Williams, uh, coach Baugh, as he is known, who played in Georgia, who has Georgia roots. And, you know, we, we kind of looked at like, okay, 
That's interesting. looks like they want to get more serious about the state. And Coach Ball actually tweeted out Georgia to L.A. Uh, after Julian's commitment. So a little uh, a big win there for the, the Georgia natives. So there are some guys in Georgia that, uh, you know, USC could be circling now that they have the big the big Georgia guy in Lewis on board. There's, you know, John S. Walton, who actually plays in the same town. Carrollton does not play at Carrollton High School, plays at Central. But there's also a- a Aaron Gregory, a guy, a wide receiver, four-star wide receiver, number 25 in the country. Uh, Walton is number 27th in the nation. So these guys are five-star caliber. And then Devin Carter out of Cedar Grove, Georgia, committed to Florida State. He actually came out for USC's Rising Stars camp, performed there, performed well there, and actually picked up an offer. So there are some tasty names in Georgia that USC might be uh, looking at with some wide eyes now that Julian Lewis is on board and is able to recruit in the Peach State. Yeah, and I think that is the connection there. Can't forget that Gavin Morris is also originally True. from How the could I forget? area. And he was pretty pumped up about Julian Lewis's commitment. So I think definitely you have uh, that class where, you know, that's a, that's a big move to be able to get a guy in a state which, you know, you have a bunch of different targets. And at the quarterback position, I haven't talked much with Julian to know – you know, what kind of recruiter he would be, you know, how active he's going to be. Is he, you know, kind of a a soft-spoken guy? I do know just talking from others that he is well-liked and he is one of those guys that already has a name and is already sort of a brand onto himself to some extent. And so anytime you hear that, you know that other players are going to take notice of where he's going. Other players are going to talk to him about it. And we'll see, you know, how how it all kind of matriculates with transfers and other guys that may want to play with him, guys on his team that may end up with scholarship offers. If he still ends up uh, graduating from high school from Georgia, you know, again, he might end up somewhere else. Uh, The quarterback position is wild. Look what happened with Dylan Riola. You know, Dylan Riola, I think, has been in like three or four high schools here uh, since USC uh, targeted him and it looked like he was going to go to USC. So quarterback position is a different animal when it comes to all this kind of stuff. And so he will have some reach. He will have some exposure with all kinds of different recruits. And because it's so early on in the process, again, if USC is able to keep him committed and and he's happy and he's excited about uh, his future as a Trojan, it is absolutely going to be a bit of a Pied Piper situation where you're going to have access to even more recruits and even more players that want to go out and play with him, play with a dynamic team that has a dynamic offense. And uh, it makes it that much easier for the coaches to at least get your foot in the door with other guys nationally that maybe you wouldn't be able to. So, you know, I mean, obviously it's at a position that we're naming guys that would be directly impacted by, you know, him being at USC and throwing the football, people are going to go, well, what about the defensive linemen? What about the offensive tackles? That's going to come with time. Uh, Those relationships are being built. And I'm sure that once it's his time and it's batters up, then if he's going to be that type of quarterback, that type of cornerstone for a class, and let's just say it's a 2025 class, that's when you'll start to see that, okay, there's some some vibes going on. There's some guys that, you know, they're group chatting and everything. You know, the peer pressure of, like, other guys wanting to play with other guys, you know, I don't know how strong it is these days as opposed to the past. Uh, certainly, you know, I hate to bring it up, but the NIL situation seems to be something that 
kind of pushes guys and, and if there's camaraderie, it's through, you know, uh, NIL deals, it seems sometimes. Um, we've seen that with, with several different schools and, you know, just looking at commits and where guys are going. Um, you know, when you see those outlier sort of commitments that raise your eyebrow and like, wow, this guy's going there. Oh, interesting. I didn't know they were that involved. And, you know, there's those uh, those familiar names when it comes to that. Um, that may have a bit more influence these days than just the, hey, I want to play with a great quarterback. Because the truth of the matter is, uh, USC has always had great quarterbacks. Uh, even in their down years, they've signed some really good quarterbacks. And they've had good skill players. I mean, that's really the thing that you don't worry about too much at USC. And certainly, you're not going to worry about that as a running back recruit or wide receiver recruit uh, when Lincoln Riley's there. You know, that's that's sort of the last thing. And they, they've still lost some guys because of it. And why have they lost those guys? Well, you underline Draylon Miller being one of those guys that, you know, that was just the problem of, I think, NIL and, and the branding and the dealing and, you know, kind of what he wanted to get out of the recruiting process. But, you know, it, there has to be something said for, OK, cool, you've got these deals and you've got these opportunities, but ultimately you have to be successful on the field to make that go, to to have those investments actually blossom into something which is real money. Right. We're looking for real money, not just, you know, oh, here's you know, a little thousand dollars here and, you know, maybe you get a couple thousand dollars there. You know, you want to have life changing type of money and the opportunity to access real wealth. And if you're playing for a program that you just can't get the football and you can't get that exposure, that NIL deal doesn't mean anything. It's it's literally just a year to year thing that you're getting. It's a it's a small salary and it's not really a career. And so that's where you've got to show up on the field with this stuff. And so. You know, we'll see with Draylon Miller and Texas A&M and, and how they play this year. I think that will be impactful. I think with Mike Matthews, it's less of a question. I think he's more solidified for Tennessee. Tennessee has been very good offensively. You know, uh, Tennessee was was great last year mm -hmm. offensively. We'll see if, you know, they're able to continue to do that. Um, but that's really not a question if he's going there to play wide receiver that uh, they're going to have a pretty good offense to be able to put the ball in the air. On the other hand, you know, Texas A&M has struggled a bit more and they've struggled to, to have good quarterback play. And so if you're a receiver, you've got to look at that. You've got to consider that. That's a big issue for you. And obviously with USC, we're talking about the past, the present and the future. They've been extremely successful uh, having good quarterbacks. And so, you know, with the receiver, why wouldn't you go to USC? Because, you know, that you are going to get those opportunities to showcase your skills. I mean, listen. Once upon a time, with Graham Harrell and Clay Helton as coach, uh, you had USC against UCLA have three wide receivers with 100-yard games. I mean, three wide receivers in the same game with 100 yards receiving. Tyler Bonds, Michael Pittman, and Amon Rossi. It was beautiful. I was there. It was great. That's crazy. You know, and they all had great years. And it's like, listen, man, that's, that's USC at one of its low points. So, <laughs> yeah, certainly – you know, when it comes to just the production and production, uh, giving yourself exposure to the NFL scouts and to these other deals that are out there that, you know, you don't have the the, the Dr. Pepper deals and the really big money that's out there from Beats and uh, Nike, et cetera. You got to go out there and, and get people's eyeballs looking at you and you have to have that sort of sway because of performances. And if you don't have that, then, yeah, I mean, you're, you're getting some booster money here and there, but 
that that's uh, that's small pennies. That's um, it's pocket change compared to what you could be getting. So that that's another thing that it does impact the recruiting trail. And I think when you know you've got that quarterback, that franchise level quarterback that really fits. I mean, again, going back to all the Dylan Riola talk, and I can say this without it sounding like sour grapes. He did not fit the offense for USC. I don't know what or how USC was going to adjust and what they wanted to do to implement his style into what Lincoln Riley does. And listen, Lincoln Riley is a a quarterback guru to some extent. I think that he's kind of excited about the possibility of a Miller Moss, of a Dylan Rayola, uh, even going back to when Devin Brown was coming out of high school and USC was recruiting him in the 2022 class and he was committed to USC for a while. And immediately you think, well, Devin Brown's not going to stay committed to USC. He doesn't fit that system at all. But Lincoln Riley went out and saw him in person at an in-home visit and they still recruited him. So that was the first sort of, okay, Lincoln's looking for guys that are not necessarily the prototypical guys that he's one with or those guys that, you know, you would think just on paper would fit that sort of spread RPO type of offense, which by the way, you do run the ball a bit. Um, and there's, you know, all sort of wrinkles and little small adjustments that you make. Obviously, Jalen Hurts is a lot different quarterback stylistically than Baker Mayfield, but there's a lot of overlap there too. If you really watch their games and you watch how they run those offenses, you see where, okay, they've implemented some wrinkles. You can run Jalen Hurts more up the middle. They started doing some like inside trap and some inside zone stuff with Jalen Hurts because he was a big body and he was a good athlete. And you don't necessarily want to do that with a Baker Mayfield. You may not even want to do that with a Kyler Murray. But you still see where, you know, the base offense, the things that you really need and require you to be able to go to these various different options and to run the offense fluidly. Uh, there's certain things that are required from it. And so I think going after guys like Dylan Riola and Devin Brown, that's going outside that box a, a little bit. There's not as much overlap with those type of real sort of pocket passers as there are uh, even with like a Malachi Nelson or some of the other guys, which are not necessarily dual threat quarterbacks, but still guys that have mobility and have shown the ability to get outside the pocket and extend plays. And so you have to have some of the athleticism to do that. Sam Darnold wasn't necessarily a guy that was like this amazing athlete. I think Sam Darnold's 40 time was something like five flat, four nine. He wasn't like this crazy four five Michael Vick type athlete, but he was athletic enough from a strength, balance, agility standpoint, an awareness standpoint that he didn't have a ton of negative plays. Sam Darnold wasn't Randall Cunningham. You know, he didn't necessarily have to make all these great plays downfield. It was basically just minimizing those negative yards. It was third and six, being able to scramble enough that either you get those six yards or you're able to extend the play to get the ball downfield. And more importantly, it was about not having those third and 26s or those third and 16s where you keep the offense on schedule. You're giving yourself ample 
ability and opportunity to be able to move the change because you don't have those huge negative sacks. And so that's really what it's about. It's not necessarily about from an athleticism standpoint, okay, is he a guy that's running a 4-4, a 4-5? It's really more agility. It's awareness in the pocket, the ability to extend plays, but most of all, the ability to get away from big time negative plays. And certainly with Julian Lewis, he gives you that in space. He is a guy that's absolutely going to be able to do that. Uh, he's going to put on some more weight. Um, the frame becomes a question with people. But I think there's been too many quarterbacks lately that have shown us that that is just not a big a deal these days. Really, when it comes to height, there's not a lot of positions that, for me personally, I think height is a big deal. I think length is a big deal when you're talking about arm length on the defensive line and anybody playing on the defensive front near the line of scrimmage, mainly because you want to disengage blocks and you got to just get away from all that white water that ends up hitting you uh, at the line of scrimmage. And obviously, if you're taller, you're probably going to have longer arms. And on offensive tackle, you want guys with long arms. But, you know, when it comes to cornerbacks and safeties and receivers and even running backs, I think height is a bit overrated. And now with quarterback, you know, I would have probably said five, ten years ago, yeah, I want a guy that's like over 6'2". You know, I want a guy that's over 6'1", over 6'2". I think statistically looking at the data, that's been the majority of quarterbacks that have gone on in the NFL. But with offenses changing and you see the trickle-down effect, you know, you have the catalyst like Drew Brees. You have the catalyst like Russell Wilson. But now you're starting to see more and more guys go to the NFL and more and more guys you see me at the college level. And that's what you need to be worried about. If you're a Trojan fan, how successful is Julian Lewis going to be at USC? You know, is anybody really crying about, well, Matt Liner, he, he wasn't great in the NFL. So, so, but, 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 but no, no, he was an amazing Trojan. <laughs> he was fantastic. He won so many games. We all love Matt Liner. Anybody who's a Trojan fan, Matt Leonard is one of the greatest quarterbacks in Trojan history. It doesn't matter whether he flopped in the NFL or not. So, yeah, I'm looking at the college level and I'm looking at Bryce Young and I'm looking at these other guys that are smaller. And certainly I think with Julian Lewis, when you watch him on film, he brings some of that to the table. You see some Kyler Murray. You see a little Bryce Young. You see a little bit this, a little bit of that. You know, Caleb Williams gets thrown in there as well. And I think with, uh, with Juju – you know, just from what I've seen from him in person, just looking at him, I mean, he's definitely built in the in the lower half. You know, he's strong. Uh, he's going to get a little bigger and a little stronger overall. You know, he may end up be looking like a running back, just like Caleb Williams does. Caleb Williams didn't look like that, you know, five years ago. So, you know, it's one of those things that we kind of have to see uh, him mature and develop physically also. And uh, that's certainly, you know, <laughs> we forget, you know, freshman, everybody, he's just a freshman and uh, and that's all going to happen. So, you know, that could change, you know, his game even a little bit, too. But I think from a physical standpoint, it's probably all upside for him. If anyone remembers my Heisman feature I wrote on Caleb Williams around that time, remembers that he actually started out as a running back. And that's why, you know, a lot of people talk about he runs like a running back at time. That's why he that at times that's why he's so physical of a runner. So just a little fun fact in case you didn't read that feature. Gerard, last kind of thing we talk about with Julian Lewis. You mentioned, you know, the stylistically it it matches and you know some quarterbacks don't match Lincoln Riley, you know, like a Dylan Rayola. On a scale of like one to ten, one being 
like a Max Brown true pocket passer and your 10 being, you know, a Caleb Williams, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield on the Lincoln Riley offense style, how it fits. Where would you put Julian Lewis? 9.3. 9.3. That's a solid rating. That's a solid rating, Gerard. You don't have to expand on that if you don't want to. I just was curious where you would put him on that scale. He fits really, really well. I mean, he does things, you know, talked about it earlier in the week. His real strength that he's showing right now is being able to throw off platform, meaning he's throwing off balance. And you don't want to promote that too much. You don't want a quarterback. No quarterback coach is like, hey, man, you know, if you can, can you throw off your back foot? (laughs) If you can, (laughs) can you throw off one foot? I mean, your lower body is giving you the most leverage, power, momentum to really get the ball downfield. But he shows good arm strength because he throws so much off balance. That's got to be tightened up. You know, he's got to do more to to be able to set his feet and to kind of know, you know, time wise what he can do, what he can get away with. Because I think he sometimes put more pressure on himself uh, getting out of the pocket and making these kind of weird throws that he doesn't necessarily have to jump in the air or, or do anything off one foot. Uh, he could probably be a little more fundamentally sound and maybe make a, an even more accurate throw than he does. But he has kind of an unteachable ability to know where guys are, know where guys are breaking off into, and to be able to make throws at different trajectories, whether he's doing a sidearm throw, whether he's throwing over the top. He has a, a little loopy throw that he likes, uh, or he's kind of putting it more on a rope. He has all of those things. And again, I think the ability in college football these days, the really good offenses are the offenses that are creative outside of the X's and O's. You know, you have a good base for your playbook, but man, there's so many offenses that have been very, very good prolific even because they have a quarterback that can create because they have an offense where again, get away from those negative plays. I mean, that is the biggest killer in college football. The offenses that have not been good at USC have been the offenses where they have lacked the ability to get away from negative plays. And that's what brings me back to Sam Darnold again. You know, you go and you look at uh, Keaton Slovis, uh, you look at, uh, you know, all the quarterbacks that they've had, which were kind of opposite of what Sam Darnold gave you. And you, you, you're kind of, you're locked into whatever the play is going to be. You know, you're, you're kind of, it's like, Hey, if that play doesn't work and the defense has figured it out, you're SOL, man. Sorry. You know, go so back. You're saying Sam, Sam Darnold was the perfect quarterback for the Helton era. He was very, very good for the, for the <laughs> Helton era. He was. And, and, you know, it's the interesting thing about it is that, so he has that great redshirt freshman year and he took everybody by storm. You know, I think not a lot of people saw that Sam Darnold in high school. I know I didn't see it. I know Greg Biggins didn't see it. This is a guy that, you know, two years before in high school at San Clemente, he was playing a linebacker. I think he was offered as a linebacker. His first scholarship offer came from Utah as a linebacker. So you, you didn't see that, 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 that athleticism and that sort of Houdini like ability to get away from the pass rush that you saw his true fresh or his uh, redshirt freshman year at USC. But then you fast forward to the next season. And, you know, again, this kind of bleeds into what I said about Caleb Williams and the offense this year, everybody's got film on you now. Okay. You're not sneaking up on anybody. You're not surprising anybody now as the backup quarterback, nobody's taking you lightly. They have schemed against you. 
And what that led to was Sam Darnold still pressing, still having to try to play outside the offense, which from a playbook, play design standpoint, obviously wasn't working. It wasn't very good. He was pressing so much. He ended up having, what, 22, 25 turnovers on his own that season. And that that's a clear indication to me of a playmaker pressing. We could go back. And it's interesting because we're going to talk about Reggie Bush a little later in the podcast. But going back to that Rose Bowl, and I know, I know there's a lot of cringe here, but when Reggie Bush laterals that football to Brad Walker, it's <laughs> it's it's a bad play. Everybody knows it's a bad play. When it was going, it's like, what are you doing? But that's Reggie Bush. That's his mentality. He is a playmaker. And in that game, you could see – that there was stress on the offense, the offense in terms of, you know, the plays that they were able to make against other teams, they weren't all clicking. And you had your playmakers saying, I got to make that play and then some to be able to win this game. And so that's kind of what Sam Darnold was like. And and he had an even worse offense and he didn't have quite as many uh, other weapons around him to make that work. And then you see him through that season and, you know, he's struggling to try to make those plays. But the difference is the defense was sort of ready for him. And so that's one of those things that, you know, with an offense that, you know, at the college level, you get your 20 hours. You only have so much time that you can prepare. Those offenses that can create outside the playbook to some extent. And when you have the RPO, that is an offense basically made on that. You know, it's made at reads on the line of scrimmage and adjusting and it doesn't give the defense a whole lot to be able to prepare for you know you're kind of looking at your keys but you realize these guys can do different things and so you're kind of always you know it, it slows you down a bit as a defense and that's exactly what the offense wants and when you've got a guy like Caleb or a guy like Julian Lewis that can make those plays on the fly in the middle of the play you know it, you can't prepare for that when the play is all right I'm dropping back I'm trying to hit a slant pass well guess what Outside linebacker, defensive end, zero blitz. He dropped right into that 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 route right there. I can't. I got to flash it, but I can't go to it. You got to go somewhere else. Um, I'm not seeing anybody else. I got to tuck the ball, and either I can run, and again, that have to be for 40 yards. I can run for three yards. The difference between that three yards and Keen Slovis or quarterback that is, you know, a bit more of a statue, uh, not as mobile, getting sacked and losing seven yards at, 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 the, at the college football level is monumental. I mean, that's really probably the difference between you continuing on and being able to move the chains and get, you know, a, a third and manageable and being out there and, you know, third and 16, 17 land. And it's like, good luck, good luck, kid. You're punting that ball. And so that's one of those things that, again, that, that is huge, I think for college offenses in general. And clearly it's really worked for Lincoln Riley. Gerard, I think that we have had, more than enough Julian Lewis and quarterback and stylistic approach talk in our cold open. I think it's time we transition to the 2024 class because, as we know, USC has a huge opener. Maybe not huge, but a lot of people are excited, obviously, for this game, the home opener against San Jose State. And there's going to be a pretty big, important visitor Coming to town, shout out to Brian Doan, our 24-7 sports national writer out on the East Coast, covers, you know, the DMV, the just the eastern seaboard basically for us. And he had a little bit of scoop posted on our board earlier this week. You might have missed it because I believe it happened on Monday with the announcement of Jen Cohen 
And it was in there. Maybe you missed it, but four-star Quincy Orchard edge rusher Jalen Harvey, who is a priority target for USC out of this defensive board that they're recording or recruiting, excuse me, is coming to town. He's taking an unofficial visit for the San Jose State game. And this will be his what is expected to be his final visit of the process. This will be his third overall visit to the Trojans. Took an unofficial back in March. Gerard, I believe you caught up with him after that visit. He took an unofficial, or excuse me, official visit in June where we thought, you know, he was kind of those guys that I believe he was in our closer group. Gerard, you can correct me if I'm wrong. He was I a closer. He was in that group and we felt very good about him, you know, going to that trip and then coming out of that trip. And I still think USC had a lot of confidence, but, you know, to see that process drawn out a little bit going out of the, out of the June official visits, he is down to a final three with Penn State, the Trojans and Maryland. As we know, this is more so a Penn State and USC battle with Maryland trying to get back in there. They're trying to make a late push, and uh, they are known to make late pushes for for local prospects. Uh, and but but the, right now it seems like a Penn State and USC battle. Penn State maybe with the slightest of edges, but here we are. Jalen Harvey set to take an unofficial visit to USC, coming all the way across the country to California to check out the Trojans on a game day. That is big because he is set to commit before his senior season starts. That has been his plan. That starts on September 2nd. So what we're looking at, this could be the final visit for that. And to have him be there at a USC game right before kind of he makes his decision is huge, Gerard. And he has had potential commit dates come and go before. So, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, that's true. Good point. We know that he, you know, this is sort of the plan that's on paper. I know Penn State, during the summer after his official visit, there was some talk that they were going to get him to commit the following week. And there was some anticipation about that. And he decided, no, I'm going to go back out. I'm going to go see USC. And so he was close to shutting it down and committing to Penn State in June and decided to take that official visit to USC. Obviously, that extended the process. So there's been a couple of dates that have been rumored he was going to commit and hasn't commit. They've been written on a whiteboard, not not pen, right? Exactly. And so this would obviously be huge if he was ready to shut it down and make his commitment uh, September 2nd, you know, the last team uh, to be able to get in his ear and talk to him. I've said this throughout his recruitment. Say it I again. think it's really about selling his mom. I think this is another opportunity to bring the family out here and to give them another look and to try to solidify what Jalen wants to do. I've been on record as saying I think if it was up to Jalen, he would have committed to USC. But I think that the distance from home and, you know, there's been some push even for Maryland. Like Maryland being in there, I think, you know, maybe Penn State at some point was kind of the compromise. I'm speculating a little bit. I haven't been said that uh, or told that from Jalen or anyone super close to him. But that's kind of my read, is that Jalen really likes USC. He loves Roy Manning. He just likes the vibe of USC in California. Um, He's a California power guy, so he was out here a couple times in the spring and then followed up with that official visit. So he's been to L.A. multiple times, and, you know, he's going to be out here again. So clearly there's something else that he wants to see or someone close to him needs to see. Now, I think he did make the official visit 
with his mom. I'm not 100 percent sure if it if, if it was his mom. I, I've kind of had some different some some sources kind of say, yeah, I think it was his mom and maybe it was his stepmom. So I'm not 100 percent sure. I just know having talked to him personally that, you know, he's got to sell his mom. He was very open about that early in the process. He goes, you know, I think I can make the move, but it's not just about me. You know, I've got family. I've got other people that are close. I have a support group here uh, back East and, you know, those folks would love to see me play and see me play not only on Saturdays, but see me play through the week sort of thing. And so again, I think that's where sort of, you know, Maryland and then, you know, Penn state comes in and, you know, some Penn state uh, writers have said that it was more of a Penn state Maryland type of thing there that was going back and forth. So, you know, that's kind of interesting, but I do think that this is a significant visit for him, significant visit for his family. Uh, we'll see who all makes it out with them. If he's got a big entourage, I think that definitely bodes well for USC because I do think it's the inner circle, if you will, that really kind of needs to be sold on him uh, more so than just Jalen himself. And I'll be right there on the sidelines. So I will be able to count exactly how many are in the Harvey party down there on the sidelines for this uh, San Jose state game. And just a quick recap of who Jalen Harvey is. He's an edge rusher. Out of Gaithersburg, Maryland, six foot three, two hundred fifty pounds. He is a three-star in the twenty-four-seven sports rankings, number twenty-nine edge prospect, and number nine recruit out of Maryland. He's a four-star in the composite, number three fifty-three overall, and the number twenty-seven. I tell you, he prospect. don't look like a three-star when you see him in person. I, mean, I was going to say saw him at the Pylon five-on-five uh, five lineman tournament. He was out here for California Power, and USC's been like 04 California Power kids, so. That's something to note as well, but he is a, is a good looking prospect. I mean, he's a good, he's a, he's got a little more of a linebacker body than, you know, kind of like the tallish lankyish, um, you know, comparing him to maybe Cameron Fountain, who's, you know, just, just a bigger body, but he's a guy that definitely looks the part, very muscular, very well put together. Uh, very explosive, and and he looked good at that tournament. I mean, he was one of the better players there for sure. So, I mean, just off of, like, physicality, definitely doesn't look like a three-star guy. I mean, you would line up uh, very few players next to him and, and say, oh, they, they look so much better physically. So, yeah, from that standpoint, um, definitely a, a good-looking player that USC's recruiting. Granted, you know, they got some good-looking players at defensive end already. I mean, you got to remember Elijah Newby, uh, the 6'3", 210-pound linebacker who is being talked to by USC as a rush end. They've recruited him as a rush end. He does have the athleticism and the ability to maybe play back. I think in a more traditional type of defense, he's a Sam linebacker. You know, he's a guy that you put over the strong side. He's running sub-10 uh, nine 100 meter times, which is really good. And he's probably a little faster even than that. And so, you know, he's a guy that can play out the line of scrimmage and he's played some receiver and what have you. Uh, but, you know, I actually talked to him not too long ago and he said his favorite position to play at the high school level is actually nickel. They call it the Hawk there at the uh, Chashara oh, Academy, the Hawk cool. position. And um, he says, you know, I, I kind of like to play that. We were talking a little bit about Edric, or excuse me, um, Eric Gentry, and he's kind of an outlier, you know, as a linebacker. He's a very unique uh, talent in terms of size, height, uh, the awareness he has, the quickness he has, the physicality he has uh, at his weight and size. 
and you know, kind of comparing maybe Elijah Newby a little bit to him in that he's an edge, he's an overhang type defender, but is he really a guy you put on line of scrimmage, or is he a guy that you put at linebacker, or is he a guy that can be sort of a jumbo nickel linebacker that you put, which I've kind of been a proponent of with Eric Gentry, you know, being a guy that you can put over the slot and you can have him over the curl. He's a bit of a force multiplier because of those instincts and because he has that awareness in space. And we kind of have to see if Elijah Newby has that. That's hard to watch on film, especially with the competition level that he's playing against. But guys like Braylon Shelby, Elijah Newby, I mean, those are the type of guys that have the ability to potentially play off the line of scrimmage. Whereas when I look at Jalen Harvey, I think, yeah, that's a guy that you're definitely going to put a rush in. Like he's, he's a rush in. He's going to be 230, uh, you know, walking in the door. He'll probably end up playing at like 240, 250 very easily. Uh, so, yeah, a little more linebacker body certainly than, uh, like I said, Cameron Fountain, you know, who's the bigger, taller guy who I see more as a five technique, even though USC is recruiting him also to play rush in. But, you know, they're going to have to sort that out and figure out, you know, who are the rush ends, who are the five techniques, who are the guys that could potentially play off the line of scrimmage. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I accidentally exited out of our docket. So I was completely in the dark. I was completely in the dark, but I'm back. It's okay. It's okay. I'm back. So yeah, big visitor this weekend, and I'm sure there will be other prospects visiting, but it seems like Jalen Harvey is going to be the VIP for this weekend. It is going to get a lot of attention from the recruiting staff as, you know, big guy out from the DMV. Let's see if they can get another Maryland prospect on the board. Yeah, are you going to wear your I'm from Orchard uh, Maryland t-shirt or or how's that going to go? Yeah, that's still in the shop. So we're going to have to get that uh, on Express. But yeah, I'll I'll give him like the Maryland look, you know, just like I'll give him the like send those Maryland crab cake, Chesapeake Bay airwaves, you know, that DMV vibes. I'll, I'll just give off that. Yeah. And then he'll, up, he'll just his no. The upper just, marble gang signs, you just flash him some of those. Yeah, I don't know about marble. gang signs, but I, I definitely have the uh, the upper upper marble vibes going on just to just to just to be part of that. Just to be part of that. So we'll see. We'll keep you updated on that. And obviously, I'll keep you updated on uh, everyone I see on the sideline for the game. Finally, excited to talk about, you know, people I see at a game back on the sidelines again. Uh, just want to run through a, quickly some new offers that USC made. I know a lot of people don't love to hear about offers, but there's only three. So I just kind of wanted to run through those very quickly. Rockvale, Tennessee, four-star, 2025 safety, Jalen Morgan. Fredericksburg, Virginia, so another DMV area. Three-star safety, Remington Moss, also in the 2025 class, who was also a Wisconsin commit. So USC looking uh, to the Big Ten uh, next season. And also looking what a at name. Ten, what a name. Remington it is a great Moss. name. Great get, name. Get him, in, uh, get him and Shotgun in a room together. Remington Moss. <laughs> Remington, I know. It's, I mean, if it was Remington Mossberg, you would know exactly where the name <laughs> oh, comes bro. from. That's a great one. Uh, and then our final one is out of Mississippi. DeKalb. I think I'm saying that right. DeKalb County. DeKalb. DeKalb. Mississippi. DeKalb. Not DeKalb. Method Man fans out there, but DeKalb. DeKalb. A three-star guard, Mario Nash Jr., which is also a great name, but it does not touch Remington Moss. And Mario Nash is also a 2025 prospect. So USC dishing. Just a, just a handful of new 2025 offers. There will be more sprinkled here and there. But 
Looks like USC just wanted to offer some uh, 2025 guys, Gerard. And our final topic before we go to the first break of the show is one of the biggest news items that hit this week on Monday, and that is Jennifer Cohen has been hired as the next athletic director for USC athletic department from the University of Washington. Obviously, we've had a ton of coverage about Ms. Cohen joining USC as the athletic director from Dan Weber columns to instant analysis to breaking news stories to, you know, multiple as a, uh, even Connor wrote a, a triple double wrote a column about uh, Jennifer Cohen when him and Ryan were at the presser. But I did want to get Hurricanes thoughts on Jen Cohen. So, Gerard, I'm going to give you the floor here before we go into our break. If there's anything you want to say about, you know, Jennifer Cohen, your thoughts on the hire and maybe some of the uh, re- potential recruiting impact, you know, poaching away an AD from a rival Pac-12 and then to be Big Ten program. Yeah, that's a better uh, introduction to this topic than, hey, just uh, what do you think of Jen Cohen sort of thing? Um, hey, I got there. <laughs> I got there eventually. We took a it does, turn. It does and then circle we around the recruiting there. a little yeah, bit. I, you, yeah. were there, you got there 15 minutes later than you wanted, but you got there. I think, um, you know, first and foremost, everything that I've heard has been very, very good about Jen Cohen and her relationship with the football program. Um you know, there was some talk about Lincoln Riley reaching out to Chris Peterson and asking him a little bit about his relationship with Jen Cohen, because Jen Cohen was evidently a, a big part in getting Chris Peterson to Washington. You know, when USC sort of dropped the ball on that, uh, Pat Hayden and company, uh, you know, Washington oh. was able to, uh, you, you know, fire Sark more or less uh, without having to fire him <laughs> and, and be able to get some buyouts. From that staff, uh, I think they had to pay a million dollars to get Justin Wilcox down as defensive coordinator from Washington in that deal and be able to get a guy that got them to the college football playoff that was one of the most successful uh, college football coaches uh, in the country at that point. And so, you know, certainly uh, he uh, thought that it would be a good idea to kind of reach out to Chris Peterson and see you know, what the relationship was like. And um, it sounded like Chris raved uh, about Jen Cohen and, and said nothing but great things. And Lincoln was uh, kind of really sold on, um, you know, just what he had heard from that. And, uh, you know, Jen Cohen goes back to uh, the, uh, uh, oh, the, the, oh, come on, Jane, um, the old ball oh. coach up at Washington. Um, and I'm blanking on his name. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Oh, oh no. it's uh, Coach James. Um, I don't know why I'm Coach James. That. Yes, it's Coach James. He's the most one of the probably the most successful coach uh, Washington football program has ever had. And Jim Cohen has a has a relationship there. You know, Don so, James. Don James. God, I'm, I'm just blanking on Don James. Um, R.I.P. to Don James. She goes back, you know, to those days with Washington, and so she, you know, she really understands football programs and and sort of, you know, the building of football programs and what goes in with culture. And it sounds like she's been very involved in all that and and really seen and absorbed um, the the process that that go on and and seeing, you know, some of these really iconic head coaches and how they do things. And you have to kind of understand that, you know, if you're an athletic director, you, you have to sort of know your role and understand what those football coaches, 
you know, the, the, the micromanagement that goes in and, and just sort of, you know, the egos and all these different things that go on with uh, that level of, of coach, whether it be Don James uh, or it be Chris Peterson or be a Lincoln Riley. And you've got to work with them and you've got to fight, figure out solutions and compromises and things. Cause you know, it's not all always like, Oh yeah, sure. Coach, you know, whatever you want to do. Sometimes, you know, coaches, they, they want certain budgets. They want to do things that you, you just can't do. And so you have to work to find solutions to try to get as much out of uh, the process as possible for, for the football program and obviously for other uh, sports as well. But, you know, right here, right now, uscfootball.com, everybody listening wants to know about how it benefits the football program. I think one of the other things that is uh, interesting to note is how much investment that Washington put into their football program. Um, it is the most of the Pac-12 and each year some of the most um, nationally. You know, Washington football spends a lot of money and the athletics department puts most of that money into the football program. And so I think in terms of understanding, you know, what your your, your catalyst is going to be for the sports programs and, and for the university and sort of what you have to um, back the most and, and think of first and foremost, uh, I, I think, you know, football is it. And I think that she's shown that she understands that. Right. She understands just the reality of what football brings to the table. And so, you know, from all those different angles, I, I, I think it is a very good hire. Um, I think it's um, going to be interesting to see as a woman sitting down with families and talking about uh, the football program and the university and, you know, things outside of football as well. I think USC already does a great job of that, I will say. I think that, you know, Annie and her team do a great job of that. I think just the staff in general, because USC being that, you know, academically, it's so good and it's got such a good network. They always sort of hang their hat on that during the recruiting process. You know, I don't think that's something that is, is necessarily we're going to reinvent the wheel here with Jim Cohen coming in. But I do think it's interesting, you know, to, to have that that aspect of a mom and sort of, you know, kind of just a different perspective maybe on football and, and, and just life in general. So I think from a recruiting standpoint, it, it is potentially something that helps along a little bit. And certainly you're going to have your athletic director get FaceTime with recruits, you know, how involved they want to be. Because sometimes you don't want them to be super involved. You know, Pat Hayden went on some in-home visits and that kind of backfired. So, you know, you kind of have to know the room. You kind of have to know the recruits on your board and, you know, when it might help and when you just don't necessarily need that help. Uh, but I think overall, it's uh, it's sounding like she's checking a lot of boxes for the football program. And so I, I think that's a very good thing. You know, coming from a university where they take football seriously, I've always had a lot of respect for Husky fans. I've, I've said it time and time again, just as a program. I think, you know, Washington has done a, a lot of things right and, uh, you know, are, are kind of been one of the few teams on the West Coast that have really put the investment into football and been serious about football. And so I think that's great to get somebody that has exposure to that and has seen that up close, knows how it works, and can bring some of that to USC. Two quick things. Don James, I was reading his his uh, obituary. All I needed to know about him was that he did not use an indoor practice facility when he was coaching. So already badass in my mind. And that's why teams were so tough. Number two, Gerard, yes or no, do you think we ever see Chris Peterson coach again? I don't think so. No. I think that uh, that time has passed, at least 
at the highest levels, you know, going uh, back to a, a power five type conference and, you know, with NIL and with everything happening, I just don't know if any of those guys want to jump back into this whirlpool, you know, even Urban Meyer and, and, and there's kind of a little bit of a, a redemption tour going on uh, on the heels of the uh, would have a different opinion, but right here, right now, if I'm Chris Peterson seeing that, you know, there was a lot of stresses with football in his life at that point in time. Uh, I think that um, he's probably feeling pretty good about not having to coach and, and run a program and deal with all of these different uncertainties with NIL and transfer portal, et cetera, right now. And with that, Gerard, I'm going to give us a break particularly your tooth. How's it holding up? It's fine. It's fine. It's, uh, okay. uh, you know, a little sore, but take a little water here and there and it soothes it. I'm going to be up for a, another pain pill here probably in a, about another hour or so. So um, we'll be good. I think, uh, you know, it, we, we might be capped by uh, <laughs> by the tooth, but, I mean, we should have an, another hour and we'll be good. I'm, and if not, man, hey, I'll grin and bear it, man. Just a freaking <laughs> tooth. Painkillers and football, name a better combination. Gerard, we'll be right back after this break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling meeting new friends or just even to master a new skill but it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes that's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. I thought the mariachi fight on was going to be like a one episode thing, but I must say it's really grown on me, Gerard. I just want to save that. And uh, how was your break? I knew it wasn't going to be a one episode thing. I knew that uh, <laughs> once the uh, the Salantor boys got a hold of it, that it was going to be a reoccurring theme and uh, might somehow uh, become, you know, sort of like a, an iconic. Uh, sort of connection to this podcast so we'll see you might find yourself paying you know maybe uh some some copyright uh <laughs> stuff if if uh the, the podcast becomes uh, super popular and uh somebody says hey wait a second man you're using you're using our live our live show to uh, propel yourself with your podcast just uh send a lawsuit to the redondo beach studio because i don't live here baby <laughs> i don't live here baby I don't live here. Uh, Jerron, I did have one more thing to throw in there. I forgot to do it. Did you know you are featured on the QB1 documentary that just came out of the uh, Bryce Young season? Did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah, you are. Your voice is uh, used. It's uh, if anyone hasn't checked it out, uh, it's on Tubi, which, yes, you're thinking I made that up. I know that's a real thing. You can watch it for free, but it's the QB1 season. I don't know why it didn't come out when it was supposed to come out. Maybe COVID bumped it or something. I don't know. But they produced it. It's uh, Bryce Young and Anthony Richardson. So it's very two, you know, first round draft picks from this past uh, spring. And then there's another quarterback out of Texas whose name I'm blanking on. Deuce Hogan, I believe. He was kind of a three star, went to Iowa, then transferred to Kentucky. But you know, Anthony and Bryce are the two main focus. But yes, obviously Bryce was a USC commit. And, you know, early in the season, it kind of teases the potential for a decommitment from Clay Helton in USC. And then one episode ends on that cliffhanger where they're like, OK, we're going to we're going to call up USC and we're going to tell them we're going to go visit Alabama. And then the next episode, the first thing we hear is your vo- voice, Hurricane. It's you talking about the Bryce Young decommitment and then the next voice we hear is ryan abraham and i didn't even like think about it maybe for the from the same show or the same podcast or whatever but it's definitely you and it's definitely ryan abraham and then connor is actually featured in as well he was you know working uh for sb live at the time and he's there at the trinity league uh, media day event and then shotgun spratling is in it he's got the most screen time he's, he does a sit-down interview and he gets his own little nameplate, like Shotgun Splattering, LA wow. Times. Yeah, so four members of USCFootball.com are featured in this documentary, including awesome. you, Gerard. Your voice is in there. I hope 
I didn't say anything bad. I hope I wasn't <laughs> saying anything too critical of the decommitment. Do you remember what I actually said? Yeah, it's like two seconds, but it's like Bryce Young, you're leading the the episode. So it's kind of like Bryce Young decommits from USC, flipping Alabama or something like that. Although, did was it a straight flip? Didn't he decommit and then commit later? Or was it a straight flip? I don't remember. I thought that he I thought there was a, commit. And I thought then there, was there was a couple was, days. Between yeah, that and then happening. he commits. So, I mean, it, I mean, it might have been when he actually commit to Alabama and we were just saying he flipped from USC. Yeah. There was that gap yeah. there. Um, I don't know. It might've even been, I mean, if I was reading it out that way, it almost sounds more like it would have been a recruiting ramp podcast piece, which I did solo. So that Ryan would have yeah, been involved in that. I, I was trying to think like where it came from. Cause I, I don't think it was like a tunnel vision or anything. It, it definitely wasn't an instant, but if you were doing recruiting rants back then, that sounds like it was, where it was possibly from, I mean, kudos to those producers digging that up and getting that soundbite. They were like, yeah. we need this. We need this. Well, you know, they, the they, they, they heard the voice of Midlothian <laughs> and, uh, and the writing. It was clear. It was concise, Chris. It was a book. It was AP handbook uh, savvy enough. And they said, yeah, let's just, that's, that's a great sound. That's a great soundbite. It's clear. It's concise. Gets the point across. It's not all frivolous and superfluous and, uh, every other endless word that you can use to describe this podcast. Speaking of lawsuits, are you, are you getting a check for that? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's a perfect interpretation of that. And that's a good segue for our next topic, which is. If anybody Friday. asks, that's actually what we're doing. That's that's what that yeah, is. I, he just, does that not, every time. It's uh, yeah, it's can't me. even tell. Can't even tell. Uh, perfect segue into a returning segment, Friday Night Lights. Gerard, we actually got to cover high school football. You know, last week's episode we did not have because I was under the weather and we would have taken the time to preview or set up under the hurricane. And then we were under a hurricane later in the week. So shout out to your cousin, Hurricane (laughs) Hillary, uh, came to town more like a tropical storm, but whatever. But yeah, we were actually out to cover some football, some high school football. So I was at St. John Bosco Liberty. You and five stars only, Jarrett, were at Modern Day and Centennial, which was, I believe, the biggest game of the week. And then uh, Connor went up to uh, Sierra Canyon, uh, Jay Sarah. That's where he was at. So we have a little bit more coverage. We can cover the the Inland Empire. I can cover kind of the uh, middle of SoCal. And then Connor can, you know, do the the Valley and kind of stuff. So we, we got a great coverage map for this uh, upcoming season, Gerard, where, what game do you want to start with? I mean, we could start with your game and, and kind of what you saw from St. John Bosco, uh, kind of an eclectic mix of targets that are younger players. You know, there's some 2025, 2026 targets out there. You know, obviously USC had missed out on Kingston, Valeo Muasa, and that was uh, the biggest target, the biggest name, uh, his uh, commitment to Notre Dame, but a guy that we think USC will probably try to stay in contact with. I guess, you know, how did he look? How did some of the other players uh, that USC is recruiting uh, down the line, maybe in the 2025-26 classes? They even got a guy there that's a 2027 that's got a scholarship offer from USC. Gerard, I don't want to cut this up, but uh, USC just released its first depth chart. Well, that <laughs> is 
going to derail <laughs> this segment completely. I think before we talk about that, if we talk about that, because that's kind of a Peristyle podcast type thing, um, you should go into Friday Night Lights and talk a little bit about St. John Bosco. People want to know, is uh, Kingston the real deal? Is he going to be the best player that ever played at St. John Bosco, which some St. John Bosco coaches have said? Possibly, but I just want to let you know, Tackett Curtis is starting at middle linebacker. Wow. And we just, we're just determined to derail Friday Night Lights. Okay, okay, I was, all right. We're, we're I was, derailing it now. I just, I just wanted to get that out. Team. I just wanted to get that out there. But, yes, we can go back to St. John Bosco. This is just funny. I just wanted to see you try to work your way out of that. Well, the but, thing is, if you, were, if you were really thinking about it, you would have had me rattle on. See, the problem was we didn't start talking about Modern Day and Centennial because I could have sat here for half an hour talking about Modern Day Centennial and you could have been going over the depth chart and then you would prepare another segment on the fly for the depth chart while I was talking about Modern Day and Centennial. But unfortunately, I started asking you about St. John Bosco and Liberty, and he's sitting there looking at the depth chart going, uh, ooh, ooh, oh, that guy. Oh, oh, wow, Tackett Curtis. Oh, Tackett, our boy. We're going to have to talk about this. Um, Wait, what did you say, St. John Bosco who? What? What? St. John who? Okay, I, I apologize. I will jump back into the Friday Night Lights, and then I could – it just hit, so I I just had to note of that because it's it's obviously big news. And St. John Bosco defeated Liberty 42-22. Sorry if I'm a little bit rattled. And it was an interesting game because St. John Bosco was a little bit, how we say, rusty. And they didn't look super clean on offense. There was a lot of false starts for that offensive line, which is a young offensive line. You know, they don't have a quote-unquote, like, stud uh, they typically have at least one kind of stud. King Large would, I guess, be considered their their big-time name, but he's a three-star prospect. But they usually have, you know, a huge Power 5 guy. But not this year. You know, Caleb Sanchez, not exactly the most heralded, heralded quarterback. They have some good young skill guys, you know, Madden Williams, Daniel Odom, some receivers that could be, you know, big-time prospects down the line. But they, uh, they struggled to kind of, like, put this one away a little bit. Uh, the defense did most of the heavy lifting, and they – Held some guys, they held uh, Liberty down, and credit to Liberty, they were pretty scrappy. They had a kickoff return. I'm not sure if it was a touchdown or it came down to the two-yard line, but special teams were an issue a little bit for Bosco, and Liberty was able to capitalize. But about you know midway through the second quarter, it became apparent, like, okay, St. John Bosco is going to win this one, but they're going to have to like scrap for it. And not a busy game for Marcellus Williams. I, I was ISO filming him. They didn't throw a lot his way. He did have one nice pass breakup, and he almost had an interception. He was very upset after the game for missing that ball, and kind of it was right in his hands, and then it wasn't. So, not a lot, a ton of action for him. But you know, he was happy they got the win. Defense, I think, is going to have to kind of carry this offense a little bit until they kind of, you know, get into that rhythm with the with the new quarterback and young offensive line. But didn't come away, you know super impressed with Bosco in terms of, you know, they can repeat as a national champion, but you know, they still should be good enough to make it to the, uh, at least compete for a Trinity league title and, you know, get back to the CIF division one title, but they're going to have to do a lot of growing up, uh, on offense. Yeah. And they've got to play on the road at St. Thomas Aquinas this weekend. And that's going to be a tough game for them. We've seen Trinity, 
league teams go outside the league and dominate all over the country. But that's going to be a difficult game. I don't know what St. Thomas Aquinas has coming back, but that is one of the premier programs in Florida. It's been the premier program in Florida for probably the longest amount of time. You know, Lakeland has been up there. American Heritage has been a, a bigger program more lately. And obviously you have IMG there. But uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is, is one of the few Florida programs which really has a great amount of talent, but then also very, very good coaching. So, you know, with the Florida programs, you see discipline sometimes is a little bit up in the air. Um, they may have a bunch of athletes, but they're not necessarily all on the same page. But with Aquinas, they have usually been the outlier uh, in, in that regard and, and had some very good teams that have still uh, been pretty disciplined. So that's going to be a tough game for St. John Bosco if they're not playing their A game and, and they don't go out there and, um, and, and tackle and get away from the mistakes. You know, you can lose that game to St. Thomas Aquinas on the road. The game that uh, JP, five stars only, and myself went out and shot was Modern Day versus Centennial. Uh, last year, Modern Day made their first trip out to Corona. We've seen Corona Centennial play in the Santa Ana Bowl uh, quite a few times uh, over the last really two decades. And, um, you know, last year was the first year that uh, we saw Modern Day actually come out to Corona. So it was a follow-up. To that, they were out at Corona again. Um, a little less buzz, a little less energy, even though this was the home opener. Uh, last year, I think Modern Day had played two games, I think, before they played Centennial. And this year, it was the home opener for both teams. And uh, Modern Day kind of struggled. I, I hear Modern Day didn't have a full uh, inter-squad scrimmage with anybody um, the previous week. And offensively, they struggled. Uh, offensively, you know, Elijah Brown didn't have a great game. Um, the running game is there. The offensive line is there. But Centennial did a really good job of swarming and just kind of keeping them from being able to have sustained drives. And when you don't have a real good passing game and you don't have a lot of big playability through the air, they have decent receivers and they've got a decent quarterback. I mean, I think I've, I've seen Elijah Brown enough that, you know, he's a bit of a stopgap. He's not a guy with the big arm. He's not, you know, one of those sort of outlier type of quarterbacks physically. You know, you're going to have to go 80 yards on a lot of drives. And Centennial was just doing enough to be able to, to, to make them punt here and there and kind of keep them off of any kind of rhythm. And uh, the game was, you know, it, it looked like it was going to be in control there at halftime. Modern day went 14 up and then they came out uh, in the, the third quarter and they had a great long drive, you know, with uh, Jordan Davison and uh, Nate Frazier both getting the ball a bunch and they had decent games. They had solid games and at 21, nothing, it looked like, okay, you know, it's over now, you know, this is going to be one of those games where modern day really takes advantage and they use their physicality and they really start to lean against Centennial Centennial. This is not one of Centennial's better teams. Um, it's a good, it's a good team, but it's not one of those teams where you have those big time players, you know, maybe dotted across the line, whether it be like a Drake Jackson or a Corey Foreman or a Gary Bryant, they've got some guys that are good players, but it, again, not necessarily like those franchise type of players. And so you kind of think, all right, they're not, they have not done anything to this point. First half modern day's defense completely smothers them. Uh, modern day's got bookends with uh, Nasir Wyatt, the 2025 uh, defensive end, and they've got the 2026 linebacker defensive end, Sean Scott, who I was very impressed with. He had two sacks. He's a big kid. Um, he's a, a little more of a linebacker right now than, than a defensive end, 
And, you know, to, to kind of go into just like the recruiting of it, I talked to Nasir and I talked to Sean Scott as well. You know, it's interesting because USC is talking about maybe playing uh, Nasir wide a little more at linebacker, um, you know, playing a little bit of inside linebacker. And I think, you know, he's made, you know, his, his name being a rush end, just like David Bailey, just like um, Rajon Davis, you know, he, there's a lineage there, a tradition there at defensive end, stand up rush end at modern day with these guys now where they just, they just have guys, you know, just lined up. And the thing is, I think unless this year grows a bit and gets a bit taller and, he, and he's a little bit longer, I think probably backing off and playing linebacker is going to be better for his career, um, you know, long-term. And so we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, he's, he's got another really two years ahead of him here in terms of development. He's gotten bigger. He's gotten a bit stronger. You can see that with him. Uh, but I think both, you know, Sean Scott and Nasir are both guys that probably at the next level with these three, four hybrid defenses really should be playing off the line of scrimmage a little more. Um, not to say they can't, you know, come up and blitz and what have you, but I think there are guys that, um, you know, USC's kind of got the right idea uh, for the defense that they run. That's, where you want to see those guys, which is what we've seen from Rashawn Davis. Rashawn Davis has backed off the line of scrimmage, and um, he's playing inside linebacker now. So I, I think that's a better position for those guys. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were absolutely smothering Centennial. Centennial has a great offense. I mean, that's always the thing with Centennial. You know that they're kind of like, uh, you know, Matt Logan is kind of the Chip Kelly of the high school uh, level. You know, they're going to have a defense which gets up and down the field. But in that first half, Modern day absolutely just slept them. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't get any kind of rhythm. Um, the defensive front was really good. Uh, I, I thought Aiden Breland was okay. I wasn't ISOed on him as much as JP was. JP was like, you know, early in the game, he played really well. He went down with a little bit of a shoulder thing. He came back into the game, but then he just didn't really hear much from him. He was double teamed and kind of taken out of the equation a little bit. There was a couple other guys on the defensive line that actually were making more of the plays. Uh, but even with this year, Wyatt, I mean, in terms of you know, knowing and scheming, Centennial wasn't going uh, at Nasir Wyatt at all. They were throwing the ball quick and they were really running the ball up the middle really more successfully. And they end up getting a drive where they go and all of a sudden they start running the ball and they saw something, you know, I think they saw something at halftime. They kept it in their back pocket. The game was still within reach and they started running it and they started getting runs up the middle and they go and they score and it's 21 seven. And then they, they had, they actually stopped modern day again and they get the ball back, but then they fumble it. So you're like, oh, man, that was your chance. You know, you got another drive now. You you just got a score. It looks like, man, you can make this 14-21. And all of a sudden, it's a game. They fumble the ball, and they are able to they are able to hold long enough to where they get a pick six on the next series. And so all of a sudden, now it is 21-14, and, um, and the game was a little bit in question. But Modern Day was able to kind of do what Modern Day does. They were just, you know, big and strong. They, they stayed in the run game. And uh, they just they were able to squeeze out another touchdown. I think it was uh, Nate Frazier who ended up capping the night off and winning that game. But, you know, it's it's a game where everybody was telling me about how modern day is not going to lose a game this year. Modern day is not going to lose a game this year. That may that may be true. You know, first game of the season offense didn't have a lot of rhythm. They've got plenty of weapons there. But I do think you also saw some limitations and how teams might be able to if you can stop the run. You're going to give modern day some problems offensively. 
And so that's going to be the big question with some of the bigger teams, more physical teams that are going to be able to do that for four quarters. It's a big ask because they've got, you know, a massive offensive line uh, and it's really a run based offensive line. I mean, you look at DeAndre Carter, he's a guard. You look at uh, Brandon Baker, he's a right tackle, maybe a guard in, in college. I know we've got him ranked as the number one offensive tackle in the nation. I don't know about that. I think that, um, you know, he's, he's a good player, but um, that that's a run oriented offensive line for sure. And um, if you can stop that, you might be able to give them some problems. I would say additionally on the defensive side of the ball for Cronin Centennial, I was ISOing uh, LaRue, um, Zamorano, who's a 2025 cornerback for Centennial, and he played a really good game. He's a good-looking player. He was uh, very physical. He's hella tall, very lanky. He kind of looks a, a bit like Kalen Bullock, just physically. Uh, real lanky, real kind of skinny, real tall, but playing corner, and um, he played a really good game. I, I really liked how physical he was. He's got the height. He's got the length. Got good speed, but what he showed was some form tackles, some ability to get up the line of scrimmage. Uh, the times that uh, modern day did go that way and they try to throw beyond the line of scrimmage, he was all over those plays. I mean, he was all over it. So he's interesting to watch. Uh, I'd like to get a little more film of him maybe before putting it up. Um, I was running back and forth. I kind of missed a couple plays uh, that he had. Um, you know, I was I was doing this here, Wyatt, and then I had to flip the field. And in a game like that, where it's so crowded on the sidelines, it's a pain in the butt. You got to run around everybody, dodge cheerleaders and and everybody else, and uh, to be able to get on the other side of the end zone to be able to film, you know, the other side. So uh, might get a little more film on that before we put it up. But he he played a really solid game, and um, he's going to be there at the home opener. Really likes USC. Uh, really more of a West Coast kid right now, but definitely a guy that um, I mean, he has the potential maybe to be a national recruit. Uh, I was impressed by him. And then the final game was that we were had representation at was the uh, Sierra Canyon and Jay Sarah game, which was more like a really high scoring baseball game, nine to seven. So not a lot of offense in this one. Sierra Canyon eked it out. The only notable updates from that is that uh, DJ Jordan, Xavier Jordan, USC wide receiver commit has not been cleared yet. So he was not able to play. Obviously Sierra Canyon could have used some of his big playability in this one with the offense struggling to put points in the end zone. And then also uh, the cilantro boy, the uh, the Mexican savior of this class, uh, <laughs> safety, <laughs> safety, Mexican savior, Mexican savior. I hope that doesn't. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> Marquise Gallegos. Uh, was playing. I, actually, I'm wondering why Xavier Jordan had to sit out and Gallegos didn't have to sit out because paperwork, man, paperwork, get your paperwork in is what you're telling me. So he did not have a paperwork issue. Uh, Connor said, you know, Gallegos didn't have the best game. We'll be, we'll be honest. So didn't have the best game didn't have the cleanest game, but you know, first game of the season, I'll, uh, give a little benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he couldn't have had that bad a game because Jason scored one touchdown. So, <laughs> I mean, the defense, this was a defensive battle all the way, or it was just really, really, really bad offense. Yeah, I would. I mean, we, we always know the first week is like painfully hard for some offenses and a lot of penalties. So but again, both offenses were not were not it on Friday night. So nine to seven, they win the baseball score. Sierra Cannon will be at a lot of Sierra Cannon games. Uh, this season with those uh, two USC commits. And we'll be you know, at quite a few Jay Sarah games because um, they've got Madden Ferriamo, uh, the five-star 
linebacker at Jay Sarah, uh, who's a who's a middle linebacker and a guy that really likes USC. He's got some ties to UCLA and USC. And so um, we'll probably go see him this weekend as well. So we may have, um, you know, a, a good bit of compilation type of film, which I, I like the best. I mean, it's great to be able to just push out film every week. It's hard uh, for when, defensive backs. Can't always get it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, modern day's defensive backfield is just, uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's like you've got Jalen uh, Jalen Davis, who is uh, committed to, to Utah. You've got Xavier uh, Brown, who I really like. I mean, I, I was watching him a little bit, and he looked really good, uh, committed to Alabama. I think Alabama's getting a good one there. Um, you've got Chuck McDonald, who's, who's playing over the slot as a nickel. Uh, USC is recruiting really hard and, um, you've got uh, Darius Dixon who, you know, Darius Dixon's a, another 2025 kid who, you know, he kind of, he, he's coming into his own. I think he was watching him a little bit pregame and watching him during this game. And there's, you know, again, everybody there in that defensive backfield is a, is a pretty darn good football player, but, um, you know, watching Darius Dixon, He's definitely kind of uh, blossomed a bit, and, and the confidence is sort of there. And another guy is going to be like a high Division One caliber player. And you just look at the defense overall, you know, and this year Wyatt and uh, Aiden Breland and just, you know, just across the board. USC's got to be able to uh, to rebound here and uh, get some momentum at, at modern day and at St. John Bosco. There's just too many good local players, and you're like, this is this is a defense right here. Like, this is an SEC type of defense. They're big. They're fast. They're strong. They've got good skill players. They're good up front. Um, it's it's like, you know, this is exactly what USC needs right now. So, yeah, um, you know, obviously it's still – Early in the Lincoln Riley era and early for this coaching staff trying to turn things around at USC. But I can tell you right now, I mean, that might be the difference maker. And Lincoln Riley just having some good football teams that are fun to watch at USC and championship teams. Uh, it's going to be it's the defense and it's going to be getting some of those guys that are there at modern day. All right, Hurricane. USC Twitter and the message boards are currently erupting with chatter with the depth chart being released about, I don't know, 10 minutes ago. But let's transition into the news that had USC Twitter and message boards ablaze earlier today, and that's Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush always does numbers, return the Heisman, put his number back in the Coliseum, all those things. But Reggie Bush made headlines today because he took to the Coliseum to hold a press conference with his lawyer about a defamation lawsuit that he is issuing against the NCAA, excuse me, could not get that out. He claims the NCAA falsely issued a statement to reporters back in 2021 saying he was involved in a pay-for-play arrangement. So he's suing for defamation. As we know, defamation is very hard to prove in the courts, and it's also really tough to beat the NCAA in the courtroom. So we'll see how that plays out. He had his lawyers with him, Levi McCatherine and someone named Ben Crump, and they had their uh, they made their little press conference, took some questions. I'm told Bush didn't take that many questions, I think two, before he was cut off. But Reggie Bush, take it on the NCAA, Gerard. Yeah, and, you know, a, a lot of folks are going to go, okay, you, you know, how does this impact recruiting? How much can Reggie Bush be involved with recruiting if he can win this lawsuit? Um, I think, you know, let's not get the, uh, the the carriage ahead of the horse here. Certainly, uh, there's uh, a long process to go through legally. I think the interesting thing is that USC seems to be, you know, sort of backing him 
from, you know, kind of indirectly, you know, being at the Coliseum and what have you do. And, you know, there, I don't think that he would be at the Coliseum having that press conference unless he had USC's blessing. So mm-hmm. it is interesting to kind of see that now, you know, happening. Uh, but uh, I don't know if uh, we're going to see the number five, you know, in the Coliseum in, in the, the immediate future, I, I think potentially um, down the line, you know, maybe through this process. Um, and, you know, it would it certainly wouldn't hurt to have Reggie Bush around the football program more, you know, is you he going, yeah, is he, is he going to be super involved? You know, he's obviously not going to be calling up recruits and everything like that, but it is one of those things where they have panels uh, that come in during official visits of ex players, uh, former players, I should say that come in and they talk a little bit about their experience at USC. They talk about um, the networking and, and everything happens after football and so certainly, you know, another big name and a guy that is, uh, you know, still holds uh, quite a bit of reverence among um, even recruits today, you know. And I've, I've asked recruits and kind of had a couple jokes and laughs. You know, some of these guys are, you know, it's getting to the point now where they weren't even born when Reggie Bush was around. And, and most of them have not seen much of uh, Reggie Bush uh, from that standpoint. You know, they, they, they weren't around when he was actually – um, playing football and most of it is, you know, like the uncles and the dads and the stepdads and, you know, the men in the family who are football fans talking a little bit about the old SE days and Pete Carroll and Reggie Bush. And certainly, you know, if they are proactive enough to go and pull up those highlights and what have you, it's still pretty uh, magical and pretty amazing. Some of the things that he did. And, and um, a lot of people still talk about him being, you know, one of the greatest college football players ever. So certainly having one of the greatest college football players ever being in the mix and, and, and being embraced a little more publicly and even behind the scenes by the university would help with recruiting. You know, it's not going to be some big monumental push or anything of that nature, but I think it definitely is something um, that, uh, that, that does help. Um, is it a little bit, you know, late? <laughs> Certainly. I mean, I know USC uh, could have probably benefited from this a lot more if this was 10 years ago. Um, you know, but I don't want to go on a tangent there. You know, we've talked a little bit about the Reggie Bush case, the Todd McNair case and everything that was done by the NCAA and everything that was not done by USC and USC is no one to blame, but USC for the way they handled that and their approach with that whole process. And, um, you know, basically allowing uh, Todd McNair to kind of hang out there uh, on his own and become the scapegoat for, for everything that went on. And, and it, and it didn't help them. It, it, it didn't help them at all. You know, they basically used him to connect everything that happened with Reggie to USC. That was their excuse. So, um, again, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but, uh, nevertheless, I think, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's always, it's positive, you know, it's just not necessarily something that, you know, is going to be, uh, this, uh, this huge, uh, windfall, you know, when recruiting again, a lot of these kids nowadays, you know, they know the Reggie Bush name, but, you know, not much more than that. Are you good on the Reggie Bush news or do you need more? I'm good on the Reggie Bush news. Are you okay. good on the Reggie Bush news? <laughs> I'm good on the Reggie Bush news. I mean, I can't, I can't go toe to toe. If this was Dan Weber, look, you would yeah. do three hours on this. Oh, Dan and I could talk a lot about that. I mean, we put together <laughs> that initial missteps on McNair, and that was a very that that was a process. That was that's something that people might be interested in even hearing behind the scenes and, and going and you know, I I I was the first one to, to talk to Todd about everything and and ever and getting the case file and then you know saying okay well Dan needs to be involved in this he's our beat writer 
And, um, you know, we went and, and, and met him at a hotel in Pasadena and started talking about everything. And it's like, okay, don't give it all away. Oh, okay. 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 But anyways, <laughs> yeah, there was, there was, there was a lot. And then, you know, Yahoo owned rivals at that point. Um, they still kind of technically own rivals, although now Verizon owns Yahoo. So don't ask me <laughs> who the, who the, who the leadership is there, but from an editorial standpoint, they put out all of the Lloyd Lake, um, Reggie Bush information, er everything about that whole case from the perspective of the NCAA and, and, and Lloyd Lake. Uh, and so, you know, we are writing this story and, you know, editorially kind of being told uh, by Yahoo, like, oh, you should put this in and you should put that in. It's like, do you want us to not put it in because it's just like journalistically, it doesn't work. It's not, you know, it's not um, put together properly, you know, like, or you just don't want us to have a bunch of stuff that conflicts with what you've reported. And so there was a little bit of a, a battle behind the scenes there. And yeah, um, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. Look, when Reggie does get his Heisman back, when Reggie does get his name put back in, when he gets his jersey put back in, I think, yeah, you and Dan should do a special podcast just talking about that. It'll be – The oh, real flex know. would be if we could get Reggie and Todd together and even talk about everything. I don't know. I don't think we could do that. I don't, <laughs> I don't think like the lawyers that uh, that that would have been involved would probably say, you know, you can't really talk about that, divulge that. Um, I don't know, but – you know, I could, I, I mean, I, I could always uh, reach out. I still talk to Todd McNair and uh, I don't talk, I haven't talked to Reggie in, in years and years. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, maybe we could get something together that would, that would be uh, kind of interesting. It, it's a, it's a thing though, that, you know, you're, you're also kind of going back over old wounds, you know, like, is it, is it really cathartic at all for Trojan fans to talk about this stuff, to hear about what was going on. And I've explained a lot of it. I knew a lot about it. I, I, like I said, I, I've known Todd for many years now and, and I know his side of the story and I've seen the case file. So I've mentioned the various different indiscrepancies and things that happened with that investigation and, and the, the, the issues with it, that it was unfair for USC and it, and it was not necessarily something that was done, um, as it as it as you would as you would think uh, a a very upfront transparent truthful fair process would result in and so yeah i mean there's 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 obviously things to talk about but again it, you're just kind of going over old wounds and you know not maybe necessarily anything that's um furthering anybody's knowledge of of what went on you know i think there would still be value in that and just hearing that if it could ever happen so i think i think there is still even if you don't think it's cathartic on the surface i think overall it could still have that effect even though maybe that's not what you not the intention behind it but i still think talking about things helps so you never know so yeah we can cross that bridge down the line but we did have most important trojans we're going to touch on that for a little bit but then the depth chart just get did get dropped on us. So it got dropped on Chris, like, like a, like a, like a plate or a bowl of hot soup in his lap. If you just noticed how it just completely derailed his St. John Bosco spiel. It 
it was bad. I'm never gonna go back and listen to that again, but it's bad. And uh, I'm like, I'm like Kingston Veliomasa plays middle linebacker. What would that be like if uh, USC had a linebacker in there that was uh, in the middle that was maybe playing unexpectedly freshman? And Chris is like, yeah. So, anyways, uh, Marcellus Williams uh, didn't get thrown at a lot. Blah blah blah. Yeah, it was it was not my best moment, but. I also have to handle the. I'm not. I, I'm not getting out of here in the studio <laughs> till like 3 a.m. in the morning. I gotta set this up for publication. Actually, this podcast goes up at midnight. Schedule it. Bam. Ship it off. That might not even be the case for today. I gotta edit it. Gotta get it ready to content item. Get it up to going. And I have to do the depth chart reactions. So. Oh, that was creepy. Something just squeaked in the studio, and now maybe I'm just gonna leave right now. That was <laughs> that was terrifying. But anyway, we are here, squeaked. so I think no, like dead on squeaked. It sounded like <laughs> a door was opening, and now I'm just gonna look up. If you hear like a wishing sound, it's just me looking over my shoulder every <laughs> ten seconds. But we had most important treasures, but I guess we could just lump it into the depth chart. And as a recruiting podcast, it makes more sense to talk about the younger players on this. So, Gerard, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to just throw you out the young guys, or do you just want me to throw out every position and what, what happened? Well, listen, you have been to practice a bunch this fall camp, and, you know, we all have certain opinions, and you're projecting and forecasting certain things as we're going into camp, right? Some of it comes away from spring ball. And some of it really is, I mean, piecing together what we've seen from players either on the past playing for USC or for the young guys, what they did in high school. So we don't get to see enough competitive periods of practice to have like these real sort of solid opinions about who's should be playing where and, and when and, you know, how many reps this guy should get, et cetera, et cetera, which I'm sure is part of the the, the formula as <laughs> to why, you know, they, they kind of keep us out of practice for that. Um, but you have, uh, I think, a better educated opinion as to things that you've heard and sort of storylines that have developed. Are, are there things just for you, because this is kind of a, like an immediate reaction piece, if you will. I mean, just use this instead of uh, having to write anything. Uh, whatever the names that jump out at you is like, okay, I'm surprised that, uh, that's, that's, that's happening. I think for the most part, nothing has super surprised me. I mean, Tackett Curtis starting at linebacker is not that surprising. I even threw it in the war room last week. Like, Hey, do not be shocked. So you cannot be shocked. If you read the war room, you should not be shocked. If Tackett Curtis is starting, I don't know how much it deals with his potential or Eric Gentry still not fully healthy. And again, I've, I've stressed this, like you don't need Eric Gentry to start against San Jose state. You can get Tacker Curtis to start against San Jose state. You have Mason Cobb. And if you can't beat San Jose state with a true freshman linebacker as one of your linebackers, then we should just pack it up now. You know, you shouldn't even and, be. And Go it's ahead. important. And it's important to point out that, that he's, you know, slated to stat, uh, start at will. And not Mike linebacker. So mm -hmm. it's Mason Cobb that's actually at Mike linebacker and Tackett Curtis at will, which if you would have asked me going into fall camp, I would have flipped those two. And, and certainly I, I know that Tackett Curtis has gotten some reps at Mike linebacker, but Mike linebacker is the quarterback of the defense. And so there's a lot more put on that position. Um, you have to make more calls. You just have to know 
more about the defense and being a freshman, obviously Tackett Curtis, they feel like, uh, you know, we might be pushing it a bit to have him uh, starting at Mike when we have Mason Cobb there that, you know, has already got a bunch of games under his belt. Uh, he's played middle linebacker a bunch and is an all conference level performer. Uh, we can plug him in at that position and we can put Tackett Curtis at will use his athleticism, use his physicality. He can be a little more of a free spirit at will. I mean, that is the cleanup hitter for linebacker. You're, you're basically playing weak side and you're be, being able to have a lot more freedom uh, from that side. So, that it, it doesn't really surprise me, especially when we know that Eric Gentry is still kind of banged up and he's been out a little bit. Um, it is interesting to see that Eric Gentry is at will and mm-hmm. we'll see, you know, if there's any kind of wrinkles that they use with him where you could see maybe, maybe Mason Cobb, uh, Tackett Curtis and Eric Gentry all on the field at the same time. You know, there's there is that potential. Um, I, I think something that kind of jumped out at me that was interesting and, and we've we've heard a bit about this, but haven't necessarily, um, I don't know if I would have totally like expected it. Uh, Solomon bird starting. Um, and, and they have him starting at defensive end. And so you, you here on this depth chart, you've got the rush in and you've got the defensive end and it's actually Jack Sullivan at defensive tackle. And then Solomon bird at defensive end. And Romello height is actually behind uh, Solomon Bird at defensive end rather than rush end. And at rush end, the starter is actually Anthony Lucas or Jamil Muhammad. Now, we've heard yeah. a, a quite a bit about uh, uh, Muhammad and maybe less about Anthony Lucas, but you know that Anthony Lucas, from a standpoint of just physical ability, you know, his height and everything, um, that's definitely something that, you know, you you expected that there was possibility they were going to really want to try to work him there, try to get him some reps there. Um, Braylon Shelby uh, being behind uh, both those guys, 13, that's, you know, true freshman, understandable. But I, I just thought it was kind of surprising that Bird ended up at uh, defensive end starting in it, and they maybe didn't go with Jack Sullivan and then maybe work uh, uh, Kenyon Bars and Bear Alexander together in the middle. And it looks like that's going to be an either or type of thing, at least, you know, on paper. Yeah. I'll say with Solomon bird, he has really come on strong through the like final two weeks of camp and really made a statement like, Hey, I, you know, I'm not rushing anymore. He's banged up all spring. So no one's really talking about him. Then they moved him back to defensive line. So you're defensive end. So you're like, okay, maybe he's going to get lost in the shuffle, but you know, they lost Solomon Tulia Pupu for the season. And he was a guy who was trending really hard. And then, someone needed to fill that vacuum and Solomon bird has really stepped up to fill that spot. And, you know, Solomon Tulia Pupu was going to be kind of a rotational guy. And now Solomon bird has not only, you know, stepped up into that vacuum. He left in that second unit, but he's actually ascended and won a starting job. And remember he had seven and a half tackles for a loss last year. He was very productive at Wyoming. He's a productive player. It's going to be a little bit different now. He's a defensive end as opposed to kind of that standing up rush end. The biggest thing with him was consistency. But for what we've heard, he's been very consistent in fall camp and working consistently with the first team the last couple of weeks. So he's going to get the opportunity to start uh, this weekend, which is, I think, you know, is a, a good place for him. I think I think he's been playing well. You reward that with him starting. The most interesting things about this is that the backup is Romello Height at, as a true defensive end. Is that for yeah. real? We never really saw that. He's been making more as a as a uh, rush end. And the, yeah. Anthony Lucas has been more so working at defensive end, 
kind of rush in. But the other thing I noticed this week, which was kind of interesting, was that they were using Braylon Shelby as a defensive end. So maybe that's kind of pointing to where they were using Romello Hyde, maybe when behind closed doors. But to see Braylon Shelby as a defensive end, and then you have like an Anthony Lucas rushing on the other end. I mean, that's just an interesting look. So just to see Braylon Shelby was like hand in the ground as a defensive end was was interesting. And I think it kind of uh, speaks to maybe how they want to use Romello Height or like, at least how he's listed on this uh, this sheet right now. Yeah, because I mean, just in terms of body types and athleticism, like I would look at this depth chart and I would say, OK, so Anthony Lucas is your five technique. Solomon Bird's your five technique. Um, Corey Foreman, eh, you kind of really wish he was a rush end, but maybe, you know, he's, he's, he's your five technique as well. He's, you know, down to two thirty-five. That's just not good for him. Um, but yeah, you would have Jamil Mohammed and you would have Romelo Hyde at rush end. I mean, that, that would in with, with, with Braylon Shelby. So yeah, it's a little odd. It's a little odd. Um, you know, how they've, uh, separated things out. You know, we've seen Sullivan play both, um, five technique and three technique. He's got a big body. So, I mean, he's, he's a little more like, okay, I understand how he'd end up uh, being a, a, a three technique um, in that case. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely some, some interesting things, you know, Jalen Smith getting the start at nickel. That's not really a surprise considering mm. how much they were talking about J rock here at the end of fall camp. And and he's a guy that's got a lot of uh, upside, you know, Christian Merlin Wallace. It was interesting because they were just kind of keeping him, uh, quiet as to like where he was going to play and everything. And then it became, oh, he's really cerebral and he really can play anywhere. And sometimes that's like code for he isn't really necessarily impressed at any one position. And so that, you know, he came in, a lot of people thought he was going to be that boundary corner. And um, that's kind of been taken over at this point by surprisingly Damani Jackson. So we're not seeing an or here, but the assumption was Jacoby Covington would be that guy. And he was, he rose up uh, quite a bit on my important Trojans list. I felt like, okay, you know, he looked really good in the spring game. He was getting good reviews in fall camp. Um, Damani Jackson, really not a whole lot talked about him. I mean, at least, you know, like, again, you, you've been to practice and talk to the coaches and try to gleam a little more, but didn't necessarily get the sense that Damani Jackson was going to be the starter. And um, they're throwing him out there. He's, he's going to get his look across from uh, Sierra Wright, and uh, he's going to get the start. So uh, what do you think of that? I mean, I I, I didn't really – look, I was a big uh, Jacoby Covington guy going into the year. And look, hats off to Demonte Jackson. The big thing with him has been you know, staying healthy and getting over his injury from a senior year of high school and kind of shaking that rust off, which he did his freshman year. But – he has consistently been the first team cornerback in those pursuit drills that we've seen with Sierra Wright, which is funny enough, what we saw out of Sierra Wright last season across from uh, Makai Blackman. And it was like Sierra Wright came out of nowhere. Now, Demonte Jackson didn't come out of nowhere. He, you know, Sierra Wright's top 100 prospect too, but Demonte Jackson, five star prospect, everyone wants him to win that job, to live up to that five star talent. So, you know, Damani Jackson, Sierra Wright, I think that's a very good combination. And we said this before going into spring camp and fall camp. Any combination that they make with those top four cornerbacks, Sierra Wright, Christian Roland Wallace, Damani Jackson, Jacoby Covington, I think is a really good combo. And Sierra Wright and Damani Jackson, maybe the two most 
uh, most I had a list there. The two <laughs> most. Is your tooth okay? <laughs> no, my tongue is not okay, but my tooth are. My tooth are. Uh, Sierra Wright and. We're losing it. Hold on to the wheel. Hold on to the wheel. We're losing it. Sierra <laughs> Wright and Damani Jackson are probably the two best athletic cornerbacks uh, lineup that you can create uh, out of these four. So I, they're going, you know, Sierra Wright's not the biggest guy. Damani Jackson, six foot one, 190 with some speed. Sierra Wright's got really good or has shown really good ball skills. So, you know, I, I like this combination. It's interesting. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. That means you hate it. That means you hate it. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I the one thing I agree with you, Damani Jackson is the next Corey Foreman here. Okay. And and I don't mean oh. that. No, see, now let, you're going to take it out of contest. They're going to take right, it out of contest. Your initial reaction is going to be, oh my God, what do you, what do you mean? He's not, not going to be able to play, blah, blah, blah. No, I mean from a recruiting perspective. From a recruiting perspective, he's the next guy that's a five star that everybody knows about that everybody's watching to see how does he develop. And when you got guys like Kamal Marshall and you got guys like Corey Foreman, you got guys that are those kind of big time, number one player, you know, at his position in the country. And you don't have those guys actually come out and fulfill their potential and go on to the NFL and get drafted, you know, first couple days, there's a lot of negative recruiting that goes on behind the scenes for you. So, like you said, you said a lot of Trojan fans want to see Damani Jackson be the guy. I mean, that's that's that would be huge. And I agree 100 percent, not just because Damani Jackson brings a lot to the table in terms of in terms of his athleticism. And he played well last year. Like he had mm -hmm. some flashes. Oregon State game. He came in and did some things. I mean, I, I like what I saw from him when he was on the football field. But from a, a recruiting standpoint, I mean, I don't know if the ship has sailed on Corey Foreman yet, you know, I mean, there's like kind of holding out hope when I see 235 <laughs> playing a five technique, I'm just like, huh? Now maybe that's just a completely bad uh, weight on him right now. You know I mean? He came out of high school, like a 260, 265, and now he's 235 and he's playing five techniques. So he's, he's getting smaller. He's not even playing the weak side, the rush inside. Um, maybe it's just a typo. You know, they've got uh, Jamil Mohammed uh, as number six, you know, along with Anthony Lucas. And that's a typo. So, you know, maybe maybe the numbers are not necessarily right. But um, he's, it, that's going to be one of those things that USC's got to work against in the in the you know near future here. I and mean, even currently, you know, it's like other schools are going, yeah, you know what? If you want good player development, you got to go elsewhere. And so. That's one of those things that with Damani Jackson, you don't want that to be the narrative. Uh, you want him to be able to go out there and play to his five-star ability. And so, yeah, no, that's um, that's uh, an important one for USC. And, and like I said, I mean, we've seen some things from him, some flashes from him in the past that have been pretty good. Um, offensively, anything that uh, sort of jumps out at you? I, I mean, we've already talked about, and I say we, not us on the podcast, but I know you guys on Parastyle Podcast, in War Rooms, et cetera, you know, Connor writing uh, some some really good stories on the, uh, the the offensive line, sort of the movement with the offensive line. Michael Churquin going back to right tackle. He played right tackle at Florida. Uh, they used him at left tackle during the spring. Didn't work out. Um, didn't look like a left tackle to me. Uh, they're not going to put him uh, at left tackle. They're going to put Jonah Monheim uh, there, and that's, that's interesting because Jonah has kind of played everywhere. You know, he's played some interior. He's played – you know, some guard is, is as well as right tackle, but you know, he's getting the start at left tackle. 
Um, I don't see anything else. It's, uh, you know, sort of like uh, amazing. The biggest thing. The biggest thing, Gerard. Maybe you're not seeing it close enough. Maybe you're not seeing it. Alani Noah listed as an or starter with Emmanuel Pregnant oh, yeah. at left or. guard. It's, I missed the it's, or. It's, it's snuck in there. It's snuck in there. But Alani well, Noah. We've heard that Emmanuel Pregnant has more work to do. There's been some talk. Like he's still got some work to do. Uh, technically, still a bit raw. Um, but yeah, Lonnie Noah, I did not see the or. I saw him, you know, at guard uh, after Pregnant. I thought, okay, yeah, sure, for sure. He's going to be uh, playing on the interior. Uh, but it's an either or. So yeah, Lonnie Noah is definitely, um, tell you what, man, talk about a, just a, a, a road grader, mauler at guard. You, you watch his high school football tape. And I mean, he's just a dude at Grant High School that was just a, a street fighter. And, uh, and he's a massive kid. He's just a solidly built, massive kid. And uh, that's interesting, you know, to see that that competition, I think that's probably a little bit of a, a little bit of a, I don't know, like a, a shout out there to, to, to Emmanuel Pregnant. Like, you better get on it, man. <laughs> you better get on it. You, you don't get just, your shit together. Yeah. You don't just cruise in here and uh, get your NIL and just kind of go through the motions. Like, we need you to be the guy. I mean, he looks the part. Uh, he absolutely looks the part, um, but uh, yeah, you got to kind of piece it together. You got to have um, the technicality, and um, it's an interesting offensive line. You know, Jared Kingston playing, you know, right guard, so he's going to stay on the interior, uh, like we talked about with Carquin moving over to tackle, which I I think that's a a good move. You know, we 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 have to see what Monheim looks like, you know, consistently in games yeah. at left tackle. We need to see it, but I'm still. I'm, I look, I'm for putting your best offensive lineman at the left tackle, yeah. but I'm yeah. still like, why didn't we just look at Kingston at left, Jonah at right, and you solidify your tackles? If you're yeah. so, you're so, you're not. Something, you're so, they saw something with Kingston that they just felt like he's not a tackle. And I, I don't know if it was just arm length or something in person, but. I mean, he's done it. You know, he's he, he did it at Washington State, and Washington State had a pretty good offense, but they just something immediately thought, you know what, and, and maybe it's just long-term potential. Jonah Monheim's got some long arms. Like, I mean, I, he's got a bit of that ability just from a wingspan, uh, a wingspan. Wingspan. Wingspan, wing, wing stop. Um, <laughs> a, a wingspan uh, um, frame standpoint. Uh, and I mean, you go back, his high school film was unbelievable. And I remember talking to Brandon Huffman about it going, dude, this guy is like, he's got to be better than a three-star. But the problem at that point was there was a lot of kids out of that area, Moore Park and, and St. Bonaventure and just that Ventura sort of County area Valley the guys just were not, they were their busts left and right. And they got gun shy. And they, I think they got gun shy a little bit with Drake London as well when it came to that hmm. both out of the same high school Gerard um, knew Gerard knew. <laughs> but but Jonah Monheim man his, his his senior film is just ridiculous like it's really really good so yeah when you say like you just get your best offensive lineman and you got to put them at your most important position yeah I mean I get that I understand that and um I don't know if this speaks to the weakness of the offensive line as a whole that you got to put Jonah Monheim there or Jonah Monheim has developed that much where it's like, yeah, you know what? He's our most consistent guy and he's, you know, he's got the athleticism that even though he's played interior, he can kick out there. I mean, it, it, 
it worked well with Elijah Vera Tucker. And he was the guy that was able to make that transition from inside to outside. So, you know, potentially it can work with uh, Jonah Monheim. Jo- Jonah's a little taller. And like I said, from a wingspan standpoint, that's never been a, uh, an issue with him. You know, he's always been long enough. Um, it wasn't one of those things that you put him on the inside because he had physical limitations. It was more uh, that was stylistically where he looked like he played better. And from a pastro standpoint, physically, he was better with the help inside. I think what we saw from him you know, in some one-on-one situations when he played at camps coming out of high school, he got pushed around a bit. It was just flat out. Just, it was just the, the, the strength factor. It was a power factor and he got pushed around a little bit. And so, you know, now he's, you know, a redshirt sophomore. So he's got some time behind him. Um, he's got time in the weight room. Maybe it's just, you know, that's not so much of an issue being out there on an Island against a bigger defensive end, a guy that's you know going to be 260, 275. Where are the specialists? That's my other question. There are no specialists on this. Is the kicking competition that contested? That's the only really like I'm looking for. Like, where the heck are the uh, the specialists? Not that I guess anyone really cares about the specialists. They only care about <laughs> linebacker and the starting running back. They they don't care about anything else. All right, I think that is enough for uh, derailing our podcast, and we can kind of get back on schedule. A little bit. <laughs> Our final topic, which was just going to be, you know, USC versus San Jose State, the official game Saturday, the opener week zero. And now there's going to be obviously tons of coverage over the next couple of days. We'll have a big preview. There's going to be a preview tunnel vision tomorrow. So we don't need to like break down San Jose State. That's not what we do in the composite. So I just had a simple question for you, Gerard. I just want to know. What three, like, what are the three most important things you are going to be looking for come kickoff? Like, during this game, 60 minutes, dust is settled, whatever, how long it takes, 48 minutes. What are you going to be looking at? I think the first thing is mistakes. It's penalties and turnovers. Uh, We saw a flawless offense in the spring game in 2022 and an offense not quite as flawless last spring and you know we take the spring games with the grain of salt but i do see tempo i do see fluidity i I do know penalties and things that are done and certainly turnovers and so i want to see in a game that usc is supposed to win by a lot i think the point margin is something like 35 points i think mistakes is going to be a a big deal and and kind of a prelude to how they play this season and and how good they can be at uh, not turning the ball over because that was a big deal last year. You know, the lack of turnovers, that's, that's a, that's huge And, and negative plays because obviously if you're making mistakes and you're getting penalties, you're getting negative plays and then you don't have to necessarily force uh, so much. You don't have to press so much. And I, I think that's part of it also is if you see a lot of mistakes Maybe you're seeing Caleb Williams pressing too much, you know, returning Heisman Trophy winner. You're seeing uh, this offense, which has so many more expectations now than it did a year ago, pressing too much. So you see mistakes or you see penalties. So I'm interested to see how they play from that point of view, how clean a game they open the season with. I'm interested to see how they use Eric Gentry. I I think that's – you know, still kind of up in the air as to how much he actually plays because he's been out of some practices. I think 
we are expecting to see him play. Uh, but at this point right now, he's behind Tackett Curtis on that depth chart that we talked about at Will Linebacker. So that's a little bit of a, yeah, if it gets out of hand early, you might not see Eric Gentry at all. So that obviously is a point nullified. Then I'll just put it over and say, hey, how does Tackett Curtis play? I want to see how Tackett Curtis play. Can Tackett Curtis be the guy that we saw in high school? Um, can he play a little more free at will? and not have as much maybe responsibility, you know, that combination of Mason Cobb and Tackett Curtis is very, very intriguing. You know, that's a, that's an athletic combination. That's a very mobile combination, not super big guys, but um, I think certainly against the San Jose state guys, it should have uh, a bunch of tackles and a bunch of plays. So I would say if we don't see Eric Gentry, I'm just interested to see how Tackett Curtis plays and the combination um, of uh, Tackett and uh, Mason Cobb together. And then finally, probably just the rotation of the defensive front. You know, who who are we actually seeing where? Is it going to be like the depth chart? How much are we going to see of, of Anthony Lucas uh, actually at rush end? Is he going to play any defensive end? Are we going to see Jack Sullivan completely playing three technique? Are we going to see um, Keon Bars and Bear Alexander in the game at the same time? Or are those guys in either or as it is on the depth chart? I think – that's going to be interesting to see too. And, and just see how they perform and, and what's the best combination. You know, you're going to want to watch that with the offensive line as well. I'm sure there'll be some, some mixing and some matching there, but with the defensive line, I think it's that much more important. You know, what is their best lineup? Do they see what their best lineup is? You know, can they, can, can the coaches kind of uh, from this game uh, really get a sense for like, okay, this is, this is actually going to work. This is the best combination. Um, this is going to work here. Or, you know, maybe this doesn't work. You know, we have this set up this way. I think it's going to be better if we, we we change this up a little bit. For sure. Yeah. You kind of had similar to mine. I think rotation at defensive front was something I want to see because we've seen so many mixing and matching between Jamil Muhammad and Anthony Lucas and then him playing defensive line and then Romello Hyde. Is he a defensive end? Or is he going to be able to... So, yeah, I really want to see how the rotation looks, the combinations that they put together. Jack Sullivan, are they going to put him at at nose tackle and put Keon and Bayer out together? I, I There's so many things they could do, so I'm really interested to see how they do. I mean, obviously they won't do them all against a San Jose State team, but really interested to see those combinations start to to get on the field. And then Taka Curtis was obviously going to be one of mine. Just I had a hunch he was going to start, so just seeing him out there make plays make the maybe make mistakes of aggression but to just see him you know fly around out there is going to be something very fun to watch and then something low-key i wanted to watch the special teams returning you know they have a lot of talent a young talent uh that have been working at returner kickoff and then pump return mainly with zachariah branch and relique brown uh i think zach is going to be the pump returner that's just my my guess right there but you know have see damani jackson at kick return possibly Taj Washington, uh, Zach Branch also at kick return. I have a feeling he might start at both of those positions, but just to see a little bit more juice in those uh, those uh, units at, after last season, which wasn't really a thing. So to be able to have a, an electric guy like Zach Branch handle your uh, punt and kick kickoffs, uh, I think it could be special when you can make some big plays. So I'm really excited to see kind of special teams see if they can take advantage of having a guy that elite out there. And I think that's going to end our San Jose State talk. Again, you can check out Tunnel Vision, which uh, we do a preview episode every Thursday. So be, be sure to check that out. There'll be one for San Jose State. Gerard, we have reached the end of our show, sort of, but we do have 
some listener questions to get to. And just a reminder, if you want to send us a question, you can email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite in the subhead or 10K and Hurricane, Slantra Boys, Menudo Men, whatever, recruiting podcast. And it'll go to my inbox. You can also DM me questions, not DM Gerard. He will not respond to you. Most likely he'll block you. That's not true. But we have a bunch of questions, Gerard. Will I do all of them? Am I crazy enough to do all of them? I don't know. So what do you think? What do you think I should do? Hey, you do what you feel you need to do. Well, how, to how's do your, you? How's my tooth? My tooth is fine. It's more how sleepy are you getting? Because <laughs> we're going to be into the uh, midnight hour soon here as uh, you try to edit this and put this up for tomorrow. So I don't want to necessarily drag it out any longer than we have to. I mean, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here anyway. So, I mean, we only have one, two, three, four, five, te- technically five questions. One's a two-parter. So I think we can we can do it, you know, because I'm feeling a little. Wild card, bitches! Yeah! I had a sub before we started the show and that gave me a lot of energy. And then I, the whole depth chart thing threw me into a loop as you can probably <laughs> tell, but I'm trying, I'm, I'm getting my second win back. So let's just, let's just crush these and yep. then let's get, let's get out of here. One of them is not even a question really. It's from uh, Adam who sent us actually a picture, a pic picture. I'm losing it. A picture. And it, it it's two uh, street signs and I don't want to, uh, dox him but one of the signs is Midlothian. so i need you to do a Midlothian. just for adam i'm not going to say what the other street sign is just because i don't want to dox him but uh he says cilantro and cibola i just moved and came across this intersection forget hollywood and vine and then it was the Midlothian and redacted street sign so can you give us one more for uh adam drug well what we need okay. is <laughs> brian wesco to commit to USC. I mean, Brian then, is the one that's responsible for this whole thing. And if we do not have a target from Midlothian, then we do not have the ability to keep it going. It's just, it's just, we just lost its steam, man. It just was so good. It, it went along with Trojan lore, even though it has nothing to do with Troy, I don't think. Um, it still feels good, man. It just feels like something out of, uh, I don't know, like, uh, you know, Star Wars or, uh, um, you know, the Boba Fett, uh, the book of Boba Fett. I don't know, Mythlothian just, it just says such lore to it. But um, yeah, you know, Brian Wisco, guy had to go ahead and commit to Clemson, you know, hey, okay, man. Ah, shucks. Yeah, oh, shucks. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, man, the, the Mythlothian NIL, I thought it had uh, some traction here in Los Angeles. You never know, though. Hey, hey, like I said, you know, you never know. Clemson doesn't have a good year. Oh. Texas A&M doesn't have a good year. You never know. Never know. Uh, we have a question from Dan, and this is funny because it was actually sent into Coach Hyde and Ryan podcast. But Ryan was like, I think it fits your vibe more. So that the funny thing is, does Dan listen to the composite two, two star recruits? I don't know. So you may <laughs> never hear this question. Answer to answered. your question is elsewhere. Go listen <laughs> to it. Go find it. Yeah. Dan from the class of 1962. Uh, the first part deals with. Coach Harvey Hyde, so I'm just going to not say that part. But he says, uh, Pete Carroll spent Friday nights at high school games around Southern California and seemed to have great rapport with high school coaches and their players. What is Lincoln Riley and his staff doing to build high school relationships? Do they have free clinics for high school coaches? And is he allowed to have position clinics for high school players? Can coaches 
attend high school practices if they don't actively recruit players while attending. Fight on and win, as again, Dan, class of 1962. Well, the they do a lot of things. I mean, they do have coaching clinics. I don't think they're free. I think you have to pay for them. And they have the Rising Stars camp, which, uh, you know, get players in on campus and their coaches join them. So they do. They still have clinics and camps for players as well. Gerard can probably speak to the other stuff. Yeah, they still have camps. They still have clinics. They actually just put out a social media post where they were talking about high school coaches being able to get into games for free. So they were kind of promoting that and and letting all those high school coaches know, hey, you know, reach out to us and, um, you know, fill out a form and we'll get you tickets at the roll call. So, yeah, they've they've definitely done all the things that uh, most of the coaching staffs have done. You know, Pete Carroll didn't go out every weekend to go watch games. That staff didn't usually go out unless they had a bye week, which is usually when the current staff goes out to see football games. And that's true of most coaching staff. There have been a few here and there um, that I've noticed that actually show up to multiple games during the season. But that's all a matter of strategy. That's all a matter of how you want to time manage. You know, there are um, schools that bring in official visitors, you know, all through during the season. USC's never been one of those schools, even going back to the Pete Carroll days. It was very few weekends during the season where USC actually brought in um, recruits, uh, official visitors, I should say. Not unofficial visitors, but official visitors. Uh, there were you know, just the, the week here and there, they bring in one guy, they bring in a guy here, they bring in a guy there. But it was really all on the back end of the Notre Dame weekend or the UCLA weekend. Next question comes from Andrew. Hello, gents. Looking ahead to this winter-spring transfer cycle, I'm guessing that USC will try to take at least one quarterback in the class. What kind of player do you think USC will target? A decent starter from a mid-major conference looking to upgrade their college experience and possibly sneak the starting job away from Malachi or Miller, or a former high-profile recruit who hasn't earned a starting job yet and is looking for a fresh start. What do you think the Trojans should do? This is an interesting question. And it's really hard to uh, give that answer because you have no idea who's going to be in the portal. It could be someone like Sam Hartman, who I would say is a really good starter at a uh, not necessarily a mid-major, but he was at a Wake Forest. Really good starter, made the jump to a much bigger program in Notre Dame. Could be a guy like that. If you're a decent starter from a mid-major, I wouldn't be thinking you would be tr- you would have the best shot to win the starting job, maybe more like as a depth piece. And then a former high profile recruit. I mean, that could be like an Anthony Lucas type of guy. Maybe they were a five-star prospect and sat behind someone and didn't, didn't really play at all. Maybe two games. And then just wanted to jump in the profile, jump in the portal, excuse me. Or is it a guy who, you know, was a five-star has been there for three years and just couldn't get on, you know, just couldn't crack the lineup. That's not someone who I think they would want to go after. I think they would want to go after someone who has production. You want to go after somebody who can win the starting job from one of those two players. And that is going to be dictated to some extent on, like you said, who is actually in the portal. Um, We talked about this, I don't know, a few weeks ago. You know, is USC proactive and they are, are they going after someone who they actually think can win that competition? Or are they going after someone who is kind of more backup material because you feel confident with Miller Moss and Malachi Nelson in that competition? 
Now, do you lose one of those players after spring ball if you name the starter after spring ball? Because at that point, if you haven't already recruited somebody in from the transfer portal, you are going to have to get a guy that's probably just not going to be at the level that would you know, be in competition to win a starting job. It's going to be after the fact. So, I mean, it potentially, maybe there's a guy in there in that second window that's a really good quarterback, but most of the really good quarterbacks are probably going to be in the first window. So you've got to make that determination. Are we going after somebody right here, right now? And you still got Jake Jensen also on the roster, by the way. I kind of think maybe USC does do that. I, I, cause I think the better prospect is going to be the guy in that first window who comes in, who feels like he can take the job over from Caleb Williams and he's better than Miller Moss and he's better than Malachi Nelson. Because again, if you're just waiting to see who wins out of that job and one of those guys leaves and you have to get a quarterback, you're probably not getting the same level of quarterback. Our next question comes from composite two star royalty in Joan Levis, who was the catalyst for us getting our official sponsor, Meredith Schlosser. So whenever Joan sends a question, I have to put it on because she is a legend uh, to the Cilantro Boys and this podcast. Hello, Cilantro Boys. Even when there isn't a lot of news, I have to say I love listening to the pod. That is love, all caps. Always nuggets about recruits, recruiting the team, and just college ball in general. I never get bored. Thank you, Joan. We really appreciate that. I do have one question. Okay, I understand Gerard says that recruiting goes the way of success on the field. We all know that by now with NIL, that always isn't the case. As money up front that is being promised or given to the or given for some kids is important. That's fine. I get it. I believe the market will correct as many of these recruits never live up to their esteemed billing. Gerard, what I don't understand is when a kid, let's say, let's take Dakota Field commits to USC and is the face of a recruiting class, and then a month later flips his commitment to Oregon, I could understand a flip to Bama or Georgia. USC almost made the CFP last year. The defense is going to be better, and Oregon is a good program, but not a great program. Their coach is unproven, and in most cases, they usually turn out mediocre. Tell us how you really feel, Joan. I know they have NIL money for recruits, which I suspect had a hand in this, because I don't see any other reason. USC has one of the top coaches in the country, the best quarterback in the country, and is loaded this year, has the coaching, and should make a run to the playoff. Oregon is still a question mark. Therefore, if it isn't money and fancy uniforms, why did he flip? That's a good question. I I think some of it has to do with relationship. Some of it has to do with, uh, you know, childhood favorites, because Oregon, even though they really haven't done anything on a bigger scale, they have been more successful uh, over the past 10 years, you know, even, you know, 15 years uh, than USC for the most part. And so I think, you know, we're dealing with a generation of kids that have grown up and they've watched Oregon kind of be the premier program on the West Coast, whereas USC has just had a lot of turmoil and everybody keeps telling them about Reggie Bush, somebody that maybe they have never seen play football. So, Yeah, there's definitely uh, various different boxes that get checked by USC, but there are things for a kid with that, you know, perspective coming from what he's seen, what he knows of college football, that is a little different. Now, you know, NIL, like you said, is a variable that we're still trying to calculate. Um, It changes, it varies, and there's really 
no across the board regulation to kind of understand how much um, of a benefit that can be to a young man. You know, if it's game changing type of money for he and his family, I mean, that's 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 big. You know, if uh, certainly if another school isn't stepping up to that extent. So uh, I think with him, it, it was the relationships that he had with those coaches. He got up there on unofficial visits and really knew and had a relationship with Oregon, you know, two years, maybe three years before he really had a relationship with USC and, and Dante Williams. You know, it wasn't until he came out uh, from his, uh, it was really the end of his sophomore year going to his junior year for the summer camp that he had any time really spent with Dante Williams and really talked with Dante Williams and really looked at USC as like a possibility. Seriously. I think what happened is that, you know, when things got serious for him, and he got up to the the official visits. You know, his family got more involved, and they liked USC. They liked a lot of the off-field um, opportunities that USC had to offer and the academics and everything. And then, you know, he decided, oh, I'm going to go take this unofficial visit up to Oregon for their Friday Night Lights. And he got around their coaches, and it was just like, oh, man, this is really what I want. This is where I've been. And, and you know, what I was hearing at that point, Oregon wasn't necessarily super confident they were going to flip him right then and there. Uh, all the NIL talk and all of the sort of meeting with his family and trying to get that flip was going to happen on the official visit later during the season. So it was definitely interesting that he was able to flip uh, that quickly. And I, again, I think he just kind of got around Oregon again and those relationships he had with the staff and the coaches. And it was more like his decision to do that. Does it mean that, you know, he might flip again and there isn't, you know, that possibility online? I think anything is possible and seeing that he was actually already silently committed to Oregon at one point from what I'm told. And then he turned around and commit to USC after the visit. You know, I think USC, if they can get him back on campus late in the year and Oregon is very, you know, they, they, they're going to be trying to get him back on campus too. Don't, don't worry. You know, they're going to try to counter, but they still got that official visit during the season. And then if USC has got momentum and, you know, they're, they're doing what the, you know, the expectations think they can do. There's a chance they could get him back on campus, and maybe they they flip him back. And at that point, it's like, listen, no more visits, dude. <laughs> You're done with visits. And our final question, kind of a two-parter, goes from comes from Jake, who said, "Hi guys, first off, huge fans. That's a all caps huge, and have been listening to the show ever since your first episode. I just want to give you a quick round of applause for someone who's, you know, listened to us for that long. I have." A two-part question for you and her. For our crew. For our crew. Hashtag, for, for, hashtag our crew. for our crew. Hashtag day one crew. Uh, number one, I just watched the Swamp Kings documentary last night, and I'm in, I'm still in utter disbelief on how we lost to that god-awful UCLA team. Any insight you can provide on how that cat, cat, catastrophe, ugh, I'm losing, I'm losing win, happened. Any insight you can provide on how that catastrophe happened. I'm actually not familiar with uh, this god-awful UC- UCLA team. So, Gerard, you're going to have to fill me in. The 13-9 game, I think, is what he is referencing. I think that was the year where USC was on their way to another national championship game. And uh, it was J.D. Oh, Booty. Yeah? And it was uh, a Reggie Bush-less um, USC backfield. And they had nothing but freshmen, basically, uh, with that backfield. It was uh, C.J. Gable was the starter. And that's... The team that I referenced being out with four starting fullbacks, four, excuse me, three fullbacks that were scholarship fullbacks that year that went down, which, you know, you don't 
have many teams that have three scholarship fullbacks, but USC had Brandon Hancock, they had Ryan Pedrell, and they had Stanley Havili, and they were all injured. And they basically ended up with Mike Brittingham as uh, a fullback. So it changed the offense a bit. They had to go to like, you know, 11 personnel, no fullback, um, you know, and they used the fullback quite a bit in those days. Uh, people kind of forget, you know, some of some of those guys that they were able to, to, to use David Kirkland and, and uh, Lee Webb and some of those other players that uh, were kind of a big part of the offense. And so, you know, they just they they, they were playing against a team that was very motivated. Anytime you play a rival, you know, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Um, there's a, a particularly a crosstown rival where these 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 teams and these these players, they know each other really well. The other thing that I think was a big deal is that Dwayne Walker, the uh, UCLA defensive coordinator, knew UC, USC really well. He had coached at UCLA initially in that first UCLA. He coached at USC initially that first year under Pete Carroll. I think he was Pete Carroll's defensive backs coach. And he had known Pete for a long time. And he had coached, I think, some other places with Pete. And so he had a relationship with Pete, but he knew Pete's defense. And um, – you know, they had just a very good um, understanding of kind of what they wanted to do. And, and I think, you know, offensively what they wanted to do. And it was just defense. You know, it was it was being able to kind of force USC to become uh, very one dimensional in that game. And they couldn't really run the ball like, again. It, it was kind of not a lot of experience at the running back position. You had freshmen back there and you didn't have your lead blocker and you were you were running a single back off all the time and so put a lot of pressure on jd booty he wasn't making really good plays and um yeah i mean it just ucla kind of knew what they wanted to do i think they they prepared probably weeks in advance you know they probably taken some of those weeks where they're supposed to be preparing for other teams and uh, they prepared for usc and they there was this was their game that they were going to win and uh they were able to win it and so they didn't go on to play and i, and I think florida ended up playing ohio state in in, in the national championship game and I think USC would have gone there to play Ohio State instead of Florida. I might be misremembering that, but I think that's how it would have played out. And a lot of Trojan fans feel like USC would have uh, would have beaten up on Ohio State pretty good. Um, it's interesting that uh, documentary kind of cited that earlier in the podcast. Um, there's been a lot of criticism about that and about how they kind of portray that team and you know Tim Tebow and these uh, you know Bible banging and. You know, it's 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 such a good team, and then you know, kind of gloss over all of the uh, issues uh, that uh, that team and subsequent other teams had from a behavior standpoint. You know, Aaron Hernandez was on that team, uh, Janoris Jenkins was on that team. There's quite a few guys on that team that had a lot of legal issues, and so it kind of marred that team. You know, in terms of being you know one of those really stacked teams, and it was a stacked team, and they had a lot of really good players. And Irvin Meyer, you know, used that. Um, that was really sort of like Urban Meyer went head to head with USC on some guys and just flat out beat out USC and some guys and was able to build that team. And then from that point, getting that national championship was able to go into California and get a bunch of other guys, too. And so, um, you know, that was sort of like kind of the the, the USC started t- tail end, kind of a Pete Carroll and then uh, Urban Meyer, you know, picking it up and, um, you know, kind of having a really good run there at Florida and his. Final question of a two-parter. If USC never got the sanctions from the NCAA, never should have happened, does Pete still leave for Seattle? Thanks, guys, and will forever rep 
<laughs> oh my gosh excuse me thanks guys and we'll Bless forever you. rep the cilantro boys thanks jake uh thank you jake sorry my uh sneeze ruined the uh the forever repping the cilantro boys but again if usc never gets the sanctions does pete still leave for seattle gerard yes i think pete was gone he was gonna leave if he got that sweetheart deal where you had general manager um responsibilities and you, you could be, you know, basically what, uh, Bill Parcells said back in the day, um, you know, going shopping for the groceries and cooking the meal. And that's, that's what Pete wanted. You know, he had some other deals on the table. The dolphins came in and, and wanted to hire him away. And he was like, yeah, but I, I want to be able to draft my guys. I want to be able to, to control who we signed in free agency. And they weren't up for that. And, uh, Seattle was, and I think that was, that was the thing. He was always a competitor. He ran in a competitive program. I think the execution of how he did that was really the 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 strength. You know, he he had he made it fun for guys to compete. You know, they, they it was a very inclusive environment, but at the same time very competitive. And a competitive environment can quickly become alienating and it can become um, exclusive. And he didn't do that. He figured out a way to kind of keep everybody involved and everybody pushing and, and everybody trying hard to, to, to beat out the next guy. And so, you know, he himself adopted that philosophy too. And I just don't think that he was going to stay in the NFL. I mean, a lot of people said, eh, you know, he'd had those head coaching jobs in the NFL and it didn't work out. And, you know, NFL wasn't for him. I don't think Pete believed that for a minute. <laughs> I think Pete was always like, this is cool. I love USC. This is awesome. But if I get my opportunity to do it my way, and I'm not having someone dictate who we draft and who we go out of free agency. I'm going to show the NFL that I'm a great football coach and I can win at the highest levels. And that's what he did. Gerard, that wraps up the questions for this episode of Composite Two Star Recruits. Forever known as the tooth episode. Gerard, you grinded it out. Maybe grind's not the best word for a tooth Yeah, injury. I don't want to grind this tooth. Nah. Yeah, but uh, how you feeling? How you feeling? We're done. The dust is settled. I'm good. I mean, I feel bad for you because uh, this will um, this is a two day podcast for you. You know, we're, we're uh, yeah, it's we're getting there. This, it's definitely getting there. We're, we're ending this just before midnight, and uh, by the time you get done editing and everything, it will be past midnight. So, you know, listen, hey, if it's got to go up a little later, it'll go up a little later. We already had a composite two star podcast this week. This is the second podcast of the week for us. So, gotta give us a little bit of leeway on that. Absolutely. I thank you for uh, defending me against the fans demanding their uh, their podcast back. I oh, did want to get- listen. I, I know when the, when the when the war room goes up a minute past four thirty a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time, I, I I know how it is because I go to the Peristyle and I see at four thirty five. Where's the Where's the war room? What happened to the war room? Is there no war room? You're slacking on the war room. I just love that we've created another piece of content people act like that for. I'm just glad we we something is so dedicated and needed in their lives. I did want to give a quick shout out to Mex Trojan 2 who wanted us to get this podcast up sooner because he is under the weather severely and wants to uh, listen to the podcast. So I hope you feel better. Hope Mex you feel Trojan better, man. O2. Yeah, one yeah. of our uh, one of our uh, dedicated listeners. We appreciate that. We hope Gerard gets better. We hope you get that tooth figured out and hey you're man, back. I'm on the fast track, baby. They, they, boom, fast boom, track. boom, 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 boom. boom. 
They know who you are. They're like, <laughs> this celebrity, this guy's on QB1. I heard his voice. Uh, and he's a star of a uh, the most popular USC recruiting podcast in the country. So there we have it. Another episode. This has to be referred to as a tooth episode or I will I will block you. That is Gerard. T-O-O-F. You have to write it properly. Tooth episode. episode. That is Hurricane. That is his tooth. I am Chris. And we will catch you next time. And next time we're going to be talking about an actual result of a football game. So be excited. But we will catch you next time on Composite Two-Star Recruit. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.